I see how this interview is already starting up. We're already playing favorites. I see what's happening here. I got the back of the commanding general of U.S. Army Europe there, Brett. So I think that that is, I'm going to lay down. I'm going to stand down. I'm standing down. Stand down, Brett and Jordy. So getting right into it, you know, you've been very outspoken recently about the importance of the next two weeks in the uh, war, the unlawful invasion of Ukraine by Russia. And you said that these next two weeks are the most decisive. And we hear that a lot. You know, these days are the most decisive. That days are the most. Why, though, are these two weeks coming up the most decisive in this war? Thanks, you guys, for giving me the opportunity here, by the way. I believe that the next two weeks are decisive because depending on what happens, what we do or don't do, that's we, the United States, we, the West, determines whether or not this is going to be a long, drawn-out, bloody stalemate that goes on for years, or do we take advantage of Russia's temporary vulnerability to break their back? That's, that's what I mean. And if we do that, then there's a chance for Ukraine to be in a much better position to start negotiations where, at a minimum, Russia is back to the pre-24 February line. The two weeks is not scientific, but it's based on my assessment of how much more ammunition Ukraine has to continue to hit important targets uh, of Russian targets and how long it's going to take Russia to get back up on their feet. Because they're going through this recon, what we call reconstitution. They're trying to rebuild all their battered units, um, solve their problems. And so there's about a two-week window so it's almost like a race, if you will. And here's the race, right? The reconstitution is Russia. They're trying to rebuild their forces. They're bringing in this new general also from Syria. But they're out there, you know, the, the convoy is just basically hanging out there. And people are saying, well, why isn't Ukraine just attacking the convoys that are exposed right now? And it's pretty much a mathematic equation in a way. Look, they just don't have the ammunition to knock the convoys, right? So a lot of it really is, is that the ammunitions need to be brought to Ukraine right now to get those convoys that are exposed. That's exactly what it is. The Ukrainians do not have the ability to reach out and light these convoys on fire. Uh, what they need is long-range rockets and artillery. They need air-delivered systems to be able to hit this. Um, th and this has my, been my frustration, that the United States, as much as we have provided, along with other allies, you don't get the sense of urgency that we want to win. And, and that's, I mean, we, the collective we, the U.S., not just keep Ukraine in the fight, but us win, which means smashing the Russians while they are trying to reconstitute. And we are just not providing the stuff that they need to help them reach out and touch Russian ships that are launching missiles into cities. Um, you know, the, the fiasco of not letting the Polish MiGs be transferred to the Ukrainians. I mean, just imagine if they had 10 or 12 more aircraft in the sky right now. That convoy, first of all, they wouldn't even dare to be out in daylight like that. But it's obvious that the Russians do not fear being attacked from the air. That's a problem. So why is it, though, that, you know, the collective we, the United States, the West, 
doesn't provide those basic steps. And what I hear is, well, if you do this or that, it may be provocative. Well, I'll tell you what's provocative. I mean, provocative is what happened in Bucha. I mean, that's provocative, you know, a genocide of people there. What's provocative is what Putin wants to do in Donbass. Provocative is getting general, the general, the butcher of Syria. They're all butchers, but getting that butcher to come in to basically do a genocide. So why is there this like delicate statecraft on the one hand, if you want to even call it that from the West, knowing that history repeats itself, knowing the issues of appeasement for people like Putin and his ilk. Why isn't it as simple as, all right, just, just, just give him the planes, just, just give him the munitions. Well, uh, the failure of the United States to, and others to recognize who we're dealing with goes back decades. I mean, this is not a recent phenomenon. The previous administration was terrible. The administration before that was terrible when it comes to dealing with Russia and thinking that somehow we could uh, deal with them like another normal country. And they're not. And and this is this country, you know, they murdered 22,000 Polish officers at the beginning of World War II in an attempt to get rid of the elites that might help a new Polish state stand up. Uh, they, they enabled Republic of Serbska, which murdered 8,000 Bosnian men and boys while European troops under a UN mandate stood by. And so we should not be surprised, and they used poison on their own opposition. So we should not be surprised that they're using medieval approach now to smash cities. But for some reason, in Washington, but also in Berlin and London and other capitals, there is a belief that, oh, you know, if we let them have 25-year-old MiGs, jets, that that will equal escalation to World War III, which I think is just a significant uh, exaggeration of the threat. Now, look, there's there's no pressure on me. I'm an old retired guy. The president has a pressure, literally, the weight of the world on his shoulders. And so he has to be careful. I just think that the president and those around him and in many other capitals have exaggerated the, the threat, the risk of a World War III, whatever that means. It, it, it conjures up uh, images of, you know, Dr. Strangelove and the whole world being blown apart by uh, nuclear weapons. That's not going to happen. In fact, I don't think the Russians are going to use any nuclear weapons. not even operational, you know, style people, you know, it seems that all of the hype behind what the Russian military was, one of the big things that were exposed is that, you know, that's a military force that really is disorganized. It's a military force that has all of the problems that exist in dictatorial fascist countries where the generals are not giving the leader accurate information. And that's what's been exposed, if anything, like why not just take the decisive stop? Let's just get rid of them. What has been exposed also, and I would agree with uh, all the chiefs said, is decades of corruption inside the Ministry of Defense and inside the general staff and inside the entire Russian government. Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, has been there for at least eight years. I mean, he's Putin's guy. He's the, he's the Minister of Defense. All these people there, they've been there for years. Um, and Putin, I mean, KGB guy, he, 
he, he's been the leader for 20 years. He knows about the corruption that's out there. Uh, that's part of how he keeps people loyal to him, is allowing, tolerating, encouraging corruption. So the corruption um, should not be a surprise to him or anybody else. The result of that corruption is exactly what you said, and I'm glad you mentioned the troop numbers. 900,000, I doubt it. Probably closer to 500,000. Uh, this is an old tactic for uh, corruption in militaries where you say, I have X number of people on payroll, so I get the money to pay them, but you actually only have half that many. That's a good way to make a lot of money if you're in the ministry or in the general staff. And then when you think about troops that are uh, got equipment, as much money as they spend on modernization, they've got tires that are uh, not performing that they bought from the Chinese. They've got soldiers with rations that are expired. I mean, they, they were getting, they've been planning this operation for months, and you hand your soldiers rations that are already years past their shelf life. What? I mean, this, this, these are all red flags of, of uh, corruption inside the ministry. What about the red flags of corruption here domestically, though? I mean, what goes through your mind? I mean, did you ever think there'd be a time period where you see kind of politicians who call themselves, who cloak themselves in the words conservative, but seem to be obsequious to Putin? Like, what goes through your mind with all of the years you've dedicated in the military, outside the military, to see stuff like that happen here from high-level politicians, again, who call themselves conservative? Never in my life did I imagine that the party of Reagan would also embrace Vladimir Putin in in any way, or give one second of credibility to a claim that, well, these murders in Bucha, this this might be staged. We're not sure. I mean, just uh, that part was uh, is unfathomable to me. But also, um, but we we do have a problem inside our own country with uh, people not being informed. I mean, either choosing to remain ignorant or choosing to listen to only one far left or far right, whatever it is, um, and, and not being engaged. We've, we've made ourselves vulnerable to Russian disinformation, where we people lose trust in our election system, in our court system. Uh, so this is a responsibility of our leaders, as well as parents, to make sure that uh, we protect those institutions. That doesn't mean everything's always sunny and, and flowery and that we always get along, but that the institutions themselves are not questioned. That, that's, that's been one of the hardest things to, uh, to watch the last few years. And I think one of the institutions is the media, which you were just hinting at, that people are so siloed in their media networks that they watch. Um, there are some, though, that are just so every media network has some sort of slant, but it seems like there are some now that are just, that are just so devoid of the truth entirely and are just purely propaganda. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm talking about Fox News and OAN and Newsmax here that have taken in many stances a pro-Putin agenda getting that butcher to come in to basically do a genocide. So why is there this like delicate statecraft on the one hand, if you want to even call it that from the way? Oh, you. Pardon, for real. Pardon, for sure.
from the West, knowing that history repeats itself, knowing the issues of appeasement for people like former Putin Lieutenant General and his elk. Why is it as simple? Right, just, just, just give him the planes. Just, just give him the munitions. Well, uh, the failure of the United States to, and others to recognize who we're dealing with goes back decades. I mean, this is not a recent phenomenon. The previous administration was terrible. The, the administration before that was terrible when it comes to dealing with Russia and thinking that somehow we could uh, deal with them like another normal country. And they're not. And and this is this country, you know, they murdered 22,000 Polish officers at the beginning of World War II in an attempt to get rid of the elites that might help a new Polish state stand up. Uh, they, they officers at the beginning of exaggeration of the before that was terrible when it comes to dealing with Russia and thinking that somehow we could uh, deal with them like another normal country. And they're not. And and this is this country, you know, they murdered 22,000 Polish officers at the beginning of World War II in an attempt to get rid of the elites that might help a new Polish state stand up. Uh, they, they enabled Republic of Serbska, which murdered 8,000 Bosnian men and boys while European troops under a UN mandate stood by. And so we should not be... Why we can't trust Russia by... Surprise, and they use poison on their own opposition. So we should not be surprised that they're using medieval approach now to smash cities. But for some reason, in Washington, but also in Berlin and London and other capitals, there is a belief that, oh, you know, if we let them have 25-year-old MiGs, jets, that that will equal escalation to World War III, which I think is just a significant uh, exaggeration of the before that was terrible when it comes to dealing with Russia and thinking that somehow we could uh, deal with them like another normal country, and they're not. And and this is this country, you know, they murdered 22,000 Polish officers at the beginning of World. Uh, well, they we they enabled Russia. Republic of Serbska, which murdered 8,000 Bosnian men and boys while European troops under a UN mandate stood by. And so we should not be surprised, and they use poison on their own opposition. So we should not be surprised that they are using medieval approach now to smash cities. But for some reason, in Washington, but also in Berlin and London and other capitals, there is Everybody a belief talk that, about oh, pop you know, music. if we let them have 25-year-old MiGs, jets, that that will equal escalation to World War Should III, which I think is just a significant pop, pop, uh, exaggeration of the threat. Now, look, there's, there's no pressure on me. I'm an old retired guy. The president has the pressure, literally, the weight of the world on his shoulders. And so he has to be careful. I just think that the president and those around him, and in many other capitals, have exaggerated the, the threat, the risk of a World War III, whatever that means. It, it, it conjures up uh, images of, you know, Dr. Strangelove and the whole world being blown apart by uh, nuclear weapons. That's not going to happen. In fact, I don't think the Russians are going to use any nuclear weapons. Those, their nukes are only effective as long as they don't use them. And especially, I think, you juxtapose that, you know, Dr. Strangelove image of Russia, and then really the emperor's without clothes image that we've now seen. I think, 
you know, from Russia saying that they have a million troops, which was grossly over-exaggerated. It feels like it's probably more like half a million, and that's not even operational, you know, style people. You know, it seems that all of the hype behind what the Russian military was, one of the big things that were exposed is that, you know, that's a military force that really is disorganized. It's a military force that has all of the problems that exist in dictatorial fascist countries where the generals are not giving the leader accurate information. And that's what's been exposed, if anything. Like, why not just take the decisive shot now and just get rid of them? What has been exposed also, and I would agree with uh, all that you've said, is decades of corruption inside the Ministry of Defense and inside the general staff and inside the entire Russian government. Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, has been there for at least eight years. I mean, he's Putin's guy. He's the, he's the Minister of Defense. All these people there, they've been there for years. Um, and Putin, I mean, KGB guy, he, he, he's been the leader for 20 years. He knows about the corruption that's out there. Uh, that's part of how he keeps people loyal to him, is allowing, tolerating, encouraging corruption. So the corruption um, should not be a surprise to him or anybody else. The result of that corruption is exactly what you said, and I'm glad you mentioned the troop numbers. 900,000, I doubt it. Probably closer to 500,000. Uh, this is an old tactic for uh, corruption in militaries where you say, I have X number of people on payroll, so I get the money to pay them, but you actually only have half that many. That's a good way to make a lot of money if you're in the ministry or in the general staff. And then when you think about troops that are uh, got equipment, as much money as they spend on modernization, they've got tires that are uh, not performing that they bought from the Chinese. They've got soldiers with rations that are expired. I mean, they, they were getting, they've been planning this operation for months and you hand your soldiers rations that are already years past their shelf life. I mean, this, these are all red flags of, of uh, corruption inside the ministry. What about the red flags of corruption here domestically, though? I mean, what goes through your mind? I mean, did you ever think there'd be a time period where you see kind of politicians who call themselves, who cloak themselves in the words conservative, but seem to be obsequious to Putin? Like, what goes through your mind with all of the years you've dedicated in the military, outside the military, to see stuff like that happen here from high-level politicians, again, who call themselves conservative? Never in my life did I imagine that the party of Reagan would also embrace Vladimir Putin in in any way or give one second of credibility to a claim that, well, these murders in Bucha, this, this might be staged. We're not sure. I mean, just uh, that part was uh, is unfathomable to me. But also, um, but we, we do have a problem inside our own country with uh, people not being informed. I mean, either choosing to remain ignorant or choosing to listen to only one far left or far right, whatever it is, um, and, and not being engaged. We've, we've made ourselves vulnerable to Russian disinformation, where we people lose trust in our election system, in our court system. Uh, so this is a responsibility of our leaders, as well as parents, to make sure that uh, we protect those institutions. That doesn't mean everything's always sunny and, and flowery and that we always get along, 
but that the institutions themselves are not questioned. That, that's, that's been one of the hardest things to, uh, to watch the last few years. And I think one of the institutions is the media, which you were just hinting at, that people are so siloed in their media networks that they watch. Um, there are some, though, that are just so every media network has some sort of slant, but it seems like there are some now that are just, that are just so devoid of the truth entirely and are just purely propaganda. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm talking about Fox News and OAN and Newsmax here that have taken in many stances a pro-Putin agenda. I mean, what do you think, what, what kind of responsibility do those sort of networks have right now in this kind of time of war? I'm obviously so old that I was around long before internet and uh, social media or that sort of thing. But I still remember my seventh grade teacher, Mrs. McKendry, uh, telling me, say, look, Ben, you got to have more than one source for your news. You can't read just one newspaper or one magazine or watch one channel. You, it's your duty to be informed, to inform yourself. And so I was, that was how I was, uh, was raised. And um, I, I think that uh, being a good citizen means more than just voting and paying taxes. It, it means being responsible and, and being involved uh, to, the, to the extent that's possible, given your family situation, your job, et cetera, et cetera. It really boils down to our elected officials also to set an example. Look, I, when President Trump would point to a, a, the bank of uh, all the journalists and say, it, you, it's all fake news. I mean, I, I thought that was a violation of his constitutional duty to protect, um, you know, the Constitution, which includes freedom of the press. And so, I mean, it's one thing to, to, to call out a journalist and say, hey, man, I read your last story. That was total BS. You know, you had it all wrong. That's one thing. But to, to point to all of them and say it's all fake, that that undermines confidence that people have in the very important pillar of uh, our democracy, which is a free media that that is annoying as hell, uh, that that uh, can be very irritating, but nonetheless, it's an essential part of it. I was wondering your thoughts as a former commanding general watching the events of January 6th, and what do you make of all, all that we've seen since then from the kind of immediate reactions after of leadership saying this was a horrible event to almost a week later, or in some cases, days later, starting to defend it and putting out fake news, quite literally, of what actually happened that day. And now the people who have doubled and tripled down that January 6th was actually a peaceful protest and, and using that as, as an example that that was patriotism that day and not an insurrection against the United States government. I had some dear friends that that, uh, that have commented on on that is like, well, you know, we we don't know the name of the person who shot the the one that was trying to get inside. I mean, questioning whether or not it, were these really Antifa people in there that blended in, and, and I don't know how how you could question what you're looking at when it's happening right in front of you, and when it's so obvious what's happening when they're um, hammering the shit out of, I'm sorry, when they're assaulting policemen. Um, somebody walking through our capital with a rebel flag, um, these kind of things. How could anybody want to be associated with that? And and also, it was disappointing to see uh, that there were quite a few um, either retired military or former military or some in the reserves that were joined in this. Because you know, we take a uh, we take an oath to the Constitution of the United States over and over and over, and, and to reinforce the notion of the Constitution. And so 
to see somebody uh, doing that that had any military background was very concerning. I don't even want to think about what would have happened if they had managed to get their hands on the vice president or members of Congress, uh, because, you know, a mob, once it starts, I mean, it, it can very quickly get out of control. Um, the reaction of people since then who have backtracked on what they said at the moment also, um, that that does not build confidence in uh, of, of people in their elected officials. Now, uh, the good news is that the January 6th commission is doing its job. And uh, I, I'm not a lawyer, but as I've watched what they've done, the way they have done this is very clever. I mean, it's like each day there's a little drip that comes out. Right. And so, and also they've used the approach, you get all the low-hanging fruit first, so that the people who are the ultimate target start wondering, what all do they have? I mean, they have to start worrying that like, all the, the, the people around them, who the president and his inner circle threw under the bus immediately, you know, what will they have said and provided so that when it does get down to the, to the final tier of targets, if you will, what do they have? And I think, honestly, uh, for the good of our republic uh, and also for our image, you know, I live in Frankfurt, Germany, and, and I have people all the time saying, what in the heck is going on? I mean... Most, most uh, professional Europeans either went to school in the States, they have friends there, they have business there, they send their kids there. And while they may criticize thing, U.S. policy, the expectation of America as an icon of trying to get democracy right was something that they always admired. And so they're, they're dismayed now by what, by what happened on January 6th, as am I. And what do you think justice looks like for the good of the country? Well, I think that every single person that was directly involved or indirectly involved in what happened on January 6th uh, is charged, convicted, and, and gets the right sentence, whatever that is. And that um, people that have tried to hide behind um, some misdirection mm -hmm. or uh, thought that they were above this, that they, they should uh, be studied. is hard as you said I mean, and that's the i guess the lore of autocracy is that it's easy you have one person who could just unilaterally say what it is and, and that's what it is uh switching subjects for a second um we're seeing a small amount of military members challenging these vaccine mandates uh refusing to take it challenging being separated and discharged actually wanting to be deployed without vaccines i mean to me as an outsider i military has taken vaccines forever like going back to george washington is this one of the strangest things that you have seen? What is your take on all this? And and these also these judges challenging President Biden as the commander in chief, challenging his authority to mandate vaccines in the military. I was uh, astounded the first time I heard that it was not mandatory to get vaccinated back over a year ago. I mean, I, I couldn't believe that was even a choice. The only choice I've ever had in 38 years in the Army was left arm or right arm. I mean, that's not... <laughs> 
uh, not whether or not I was going to get uh, vaccinated. And I never, I never questioned it. You know, it was never like, gee, I wonder if the doctor knows more right. than I do about, you know, what I need to go into Iraq or Afghanistan or Panama or wherever it was I was going. So I just was astounded. I can't imagine that. Uh, how could you, uh, if, if the purpose of the military is to be ready to fight and win a nation's wars, that means you have to be ready to go on very short notice. And, and so readiness is always the top priority. Well, how can you put four soldiers inside of a tank or, uh, you know, three or four aviators inside a Chinook or whatever the, the complement of a submarine is, 100 or 150 sailors inside a submarine and have three or four of them walking around like, hey, man, you know, I didn't have to do that. That, that, that kills readiness and it also undermines trust. So if a soldier or a sailor or airman says, I'm not doing it, we have we have ways to separate people just like somebody else that refuses an order. And then lastly, going back to Russia's unlawful invasion in Ukraine, how does it end for Putin? You know, you have President Biden on record saying this guy can't remain in power. Now, the administration tried to walk that back and then he walked back the walk back. Um, how, how do you think it ends for Putin? Well, badly. It's going to end bad. He's he's never going to be welcome or invited anywhere uh, again, except, you know, maybe North Korea or um you know, someplace like that. I mean, it's just, um, I, I can't even imagine him or Lavrov or any of these other characters being welcomed back into polite society in Europe uh, or the United States or, or most other places. If he's lucky, he gets to live, live to old age somewhere. I don't think he's going to be that lucky. I mean, Russia has a pretty violent history. And uh, I was proud that the president said, said what he said. And yeah, yeah of course, people so wet themselves. Uh, people were wetting their pants when he said that. But, you know, when, when President Reagan said, called Russia the evil empire, called the Soviet Union the evil empire, there were diplomats around him and Europeans that almost fainted. Oh, you can't talk like that. That's exactly kind of the unifying uh, force uh, concept. And so I think for, for our president to say what that guy's doing, he does not deserve to be the leader of a country. He need, cannot remain in power and he's a war, he's a war criminal. And, and yeah, maybe that was not 100% elegant in terms of a legal construct. But if you're the president of the United States, what you say matters. And it, it helps shape uh, actions and thought. And I'm glad he said it. And how about that? You know, about two or three days later, it comes out and everybody's like, God dang, what a war criminal is, is, is Putin. How is he even walking around? Now, we are seeing and hearing a lot more in the last few days about the Russian population. Clearly, they're not a bunch of adults that have no idea what's going on. I mean, I would say at least half of their population is uh, completely hooked on state-run media. But the other half is not. But yet there still is a lot of support inside Russia for what's going on. And they have, they have bought into this notion. And so um, this is not just a crazy guy. He's got a lot of support. And, and so we've got our work cut out from a long-term standpoint to uh, reach the Russian population. They have suffered as much from Putin's regime as, as most of their neighbors. I mean, life sucks inside Russia if you're not in downtown Moscow or St. Petersburg. It's not very good. I'll just say this, Ben. We have a – one of the things we've been lucky here to have is a really, really, really big audience. And sometimes I find – on these interview style shows, 
the interviewers drive, you know, these things. But I have the commanding, former commanding general for the U.S. Army in Europe on. And sometimes I just need to shut up and, and listen, you know, and 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 hear just what your, you know, what your thoughts are, what's going on. I'm sure you go on all of these shows and there's just some questions that you don't get asked. There's just something that you've really wanted to convey to a large audience and say, can you stop asking me this? Just let me speak for a second. So if someone were to frame the question the way I just did to you, like what's the overall message that you have, you know, to the United States right now or, or even to the world, to a big audience? So uh, Brett and Jordy were wrong. You really are smart. I mean, that that was a very well... Uh... <laughs> Look, what is so frustrating when I hear people say, why do we care? I mean, why why do we need to worry about Ukraine? And, and so much of the debate about Ukraine over the past several years has been as if it's an island. But it's not an island. The reason we care about Ukraine is not only because of its amazing history and, and culture and, and people, but it's because of where it sits on the map. The, the Black Sea region is an area that's not very well known to most of us. Honestly, until a few years ago, I didn't fully understand the significance of it. But when you can step back from the map and think about the Black Sea, we have three NATO allies there, Turkey, Romania, and Bulgaria. We have treaty obligations to help protect them. So that's one reason it's strategically important. Number two, the Black Sea region is our buffer against Iran. I mean, Iran is on the south side, southeast side of Turkey. So having the Black Sea that is stable, secure with allies and partners helps keep Iran further and further away. It's also the third reason it's important is because Russia needs it for everything it does in the Caucasus, which is Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan, everything that Russia does in the Balkans, specifically uh, helping out uh, Serbia, but also causing problems in other countries. And then they use it, the Black Sea is their launching pad for their support of the Assad regime, which used chemicals on its own people and put millions of refugees on the road into Europe, which seriously undermined uh, European the European civil society and politics uh, for decades. So it's a place where we have to compete. And then finally, there's huge economic potential. The, the Black Sea region is the economic corridor between Europe and Eurasia. If we help develop Ukraine and Georgia and Romania, the, the prosperity of this region would be significant. The other two choices for East-West movement is to go through Russia or through Iran. So there's strategic reasons to be involved and for Ukraine to be successful. And then finally, of course, if Russia defeats Ukraine, if they're able to crush Ukraine, then that, that's, not, that's not the end of the day. I mean, they're going to keep going. They're going to go to Moldova. They're going to go after the rest of Georgia. And they're going to be a threat. So this appeasement, if somehow we end up with a settlement that's less than what it should be, which means Russia back to the pre-24 February line, then they'll just wait a couple of years and, and we'll all be having the same conversation again. See, that was the best question of the podcast by me. <laughs> I, I, what if that was the move, Brett, that when I just have like the most qualified people like Ben Hodges, like join the podcast. And instead of just asking questions, I just go. Ben, yeah, the, floor. Floor, the floor is yours. Yeah. <laughs> but in all seriousness, Ben, we really appreciate you. You set a great tone. And, you know, to listen to somebody ramble for 20, 30 minutes is hard. But the way you guys do it, I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity you gave me. Ben, I just thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We hope you'll come back and join us again. Thanks, guys. So great having 
someone has experienced as Ben Hodges walking us through what's going on in Ukraine. It's truly incredible. I mean, the fact that we're able to speak to a former commanding general of the U.S. Army of all of Europe on the show, I mean, it's it's truly, it's, it's, it's awesome. It was so honored to have him on the show. Absolutely. So let's talk about, Jordy, this is your home. This is your neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. This is Pennsylvania. Trump endorsed Dr. Oz um, in the Senate primary race in Pennsylvania. And he chose Dr. Oz over David McCormick. And uh, David McCormick was the former CEO of Bridgewater Associates. In many ways, David McCormick tried to promote himself as kind of a Glenn Youngkin type figure, you know, former private equity, um, QAnon adjacent, but tries to portray himself as like having uh, business acumen. And look, I mean, being the head of Bridgewater, by the way, Bridgewater, when I, when I, Remember earlier in the pod when I talked about different funds? Uh-huh. Like Bridgewater is like an example of like a fund that exists. Yeah, they're, where... they're not only a fund that exists, but I think they are the largest fund that exists. And he was the CEO of that. No, there's no. I mean, uh, they have about, as of March 2021, they had about $140 billion in assets under management, which is definitely a very large uh, fund. 70 MBSs. Right. 70 Kushners. Um, <laughs> Uh, took me a but, second, but I got but, that. And David McCormick's uh, wife, Dina Powell, worked for Trump. She was a former counselor to the president. Dude, she was the deputy national security advisor in the Trump administration. So, so naturally, MAGA world all thought that McCormick was going to be Trump's endorsement here. And I think McCormick also thought uh, that he was going to be Trump's endorsement. And didn't Trump have them all show up at like Mar-a-Lago too? And like, yeah, McCormick went to Mar-a-Lago like a few days ago to kiss the ring as uh, like just in this weirdo thing that they all do. They fly down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring of Trump and then they leave and then they pray that he endorses them. But two or three days later, what does Trump do? He endorses Dr. Oz, which sets MAGA world ablaze, sets the right wing, drives them fucking crazy. Well, I want to I want to go back and keep talking about McCormick for one second. But so the Oz endorsement is so bizarre because McCormick is a Pennsylvania guy. The one thing that I've absolutely learned about living here for the last two and a half years is that Pennsylvanians love Pennsylvanians. Now, McCormick did move to Connecticut to start his hedge fund. So it was a layup. For Trump to endorse McCormick. I mean, it would have been very, very difficult for a Democratic candidate to win if McCormick got the Trump endorsement. Now, I'm not saying it's over by any means. Like, you still have to get out there and vote Pennsylvanians. But it is a shock. A shockwave hit Pennsylvania. All citizens across this great commonwealth that he endorsed Oz, a Hollywood elitist, over one of their own. People are furious about that. Yeah, but it's also like it's so typical Trump. Like, of course, he's going to endorse the celebrity guy who's like him, who's like a fraud, who's a quack, who's who is basically Trump, but for like doctors. Like, like of course, he's going to do that guy instead when you look at it in retrospect. But the weird thing, to, not the weird thing, but the funny thing to me is how all these right wingers, they like are so close to getting it, but so far away when they start placing the blame about Trump on this. Like you have Mo Brooks out there who also famously recently just got rejected by Trump 
Trump. And he goes, this is happening because Trump surrounded himself by staff who are on McConnell's payroll and hostile to the MAGA agenda. Everybody telling Trump who to endorse in primaries works for the swamp. They played him again. You have right wing radio host Eric Erickson saying it's like Donald Trump's staff is sabotaging Trump by convincing him to make the worst possible endorsements. You have Breitbart News is Joel Pollack. This endorsement could divide MAGA in the only way that matters. He could lose America first conservatives over it. Roger Stone, wait, President Trump endorsed this guy? It's like everybody seems to blame the people around Trump, but not Trump himself. It's always, oh, his advisors are advising him wrong. But it's never like, oh, so you're saying that Trump is easily duped? You're saying that Trump is so easily duped by anybody in his ear, by the last person around him. That's that's your argument that you want to make about this guy who you adore so much, that he is so easily fooled and that he's a, a, just a moron. That's that that's like your best argument for the guy. Oh, he's just an idiot. He's just listening to who's ever in his ear last. He's just a moron. I mean, if he if he did this on his own, he would never do this. If, if you're a podcast listener listening in Pennsylvania, too, you know that the Oz commercials and the McCormick commercials are just batshit crazy. And why they're so crazy, too, is because they all kiss the ring to Donald Trump. Now, McCormick, his strategy is going to have to change. He's going to have to now not become the MAGA candidate that he's been portraying himself to be. So it's going to be interesting. And just a personal anecdote for me, my extended family here, they're not all Democrats. You know, everyone I speak to around here in Pennsylvania that, that I know. And they have told me already that they would rather vote for Fetterman, one of their own, then vote for Dr. Oz as quote-unquote Hollywood elitist because that's how McCormick has painted Oz in all of his campaign videos. I mean, this is truly, truly a miscalculation from Donald Trump, and I just love to see it. Now, it's not over. Get out there and vote, Pennsylvania. And I'm going to do something that we don't typically do here. Fetterman is the guy that we need to win that Senate seat. There are a lot of great candidates. Fetterman, Braddock, Mayor, favorites over here. Braddock, Mayor, for five years, zero homicides while he was mayor. The bridge collapsed here in Pennsylvania. He was the first guy on the scene wearing shorts. Why? Because he was going for a jog in the neighborhood. He's a neighborhood guy. Instead of going home and putting on a suit and being all politics, glam in this, no, he went straight to the bridge collapse to see what was going and how he could help. He is Pennsylvania thick and thin through and through. He is our guy. Well, I'll just say, um, yeah, rooting for Fetterman, rooting for Connor Lamb, rooting for Malcolm Kenyatta. Whoever gets that nomination, you know, I will back 150 percent. Um, and I think this all, all in general, this is very good for Democrats, uh, Trump's endorsement. And also, you know, you have the added benefit of Oz is the honestly, he's he's a quack and he's a fraud, but he's the least crazy out of all those candidates also, which, you know, is, is, isn't the worst thing also to acknowledge that at least the alternative is also not one of these total and complete psychopaths. I mean, he's still a fake and a fraud and, you know, should never be anywhere near government. But, well, you know. I mean, you look, you look at Georgia, you look at Georgia, Brett, with uh, Herschel Walker running oh against my God. Senator Warnock. And you have Herschel Walker who, like, repeatedly, like, put a gun to his wife's head. And I mean, we can go we can go into all the personal attacks, which we will at a later time. But, like, when he's asked the most basic of questions, he literally just responds with gibberish. Yeah, I mean, I mean, like just thinking about like getting answers, uh, getting questions, and being prepared with answers. Like at the, I genuinely don't think he knows what he's running for. Right, but Ben, but Ben, ultimately, the sad part is you're right. 
he still has a four-point lead in the latest polls over Warnock. So that's why you have to, listeners, Georgia, you have to bring that 2020 energy to 2022 because Raphael Warnock needs that seat. You cannot let Herschel Walker get that seat. By all means, absolutely not. Warnock's been like the most inspiring, like most incredible senator of all time. Also, like his speeches on voting rights. He's he's really just such a fighter for Georgia. But honestly, when I look at this poll, I'm not I don't like freak out that poll. I, I, it's still very early. I don't freak out when I look at these polls. It just shows us that we got work to do. And the second that people actually start hearing from Walker, I think these polls are going to shift pretty drastically once they hear that he really can't even speak a coherent sentence. Well, let, 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 well let's let's listen to uh, Herschel Walker on the fake business channel. Tell us what changed in the last 14 months since Warnock won that seat? You know, what what has changed is where do you start? You know, where do you start at? What has changed is, uh, you know, we've got an administration that, that, that they're not leaders. They're almost, uh, they're, they're, to, they're more reactive rather than proactive. And what I mean by that is, you know, one of the first thing they did, and I think people need to know this, is they decided that they were going to give up our energy by him going out, giving up our energy. And now we're not energy independent anymore, which started the whole downfall. But I don't even think he knows what he's, what he's saying. That's the issue. I mean, that, and that's, look, the, the, the choice is very clear. It's no longer like a two-party system that has different ideas of how to better help America and how to help our democracy. You have one party right now in the Democrats, which is a bigger ten party that supports democracy at its core, that supports the people, and that, uh, you know, he, and, and supports American ideals here and abroad. On the other hand, you got people on the radical right who it's really sad, it's really pathetic, and it is our mission at Midas that we're going to keep highlighting this every single day. And we're going to win in 2022. When I say we are going to win in 2022, America is going to win in 2022. America is going to win in 2024. We're, we're better than this. I know we're better than this. And when people get the truthful, accurate information, they're not lied to. They know also. And so we just got to keep at it each and every day. Special thanks to our sponsors, Buck Mason and BetterHelp. Uh, go check it out and use those promo codes. Midas, and special thanks to our guest, former commanding general of the U.S. Army in Europe, Ben Hodges, who serves now as the Pershing chair at the Center for European Policy Analysis. We will see you next time on the Midas Touch Podcast. Shout out to the Midas Midas!
Anunnaki Sumerians. Revealing Strange Artifacts and Mesopotamian Mysteries Leonard Woolley, an archaeologist from Britain, returned to Iraq in 1922, almost 4,000 years after the nuclear ancient catastrophe, to uncover ancient Mesopotamia, an imposing ziggurat standing out in the desert plain drew him to the nearby site of Tel el-Mukiyar, where he began excavating. As old walls, artifacts and inscriptions were unearthed, he realized he was digging up ancient Ur-Ur of the Chaldees. Twelve years of his work were conducted through a joint expedition between the British Museum in London and the University of Pennsylvania Museum in Philadelphia. For those institutions, Sir Leonard Woolley found some of the most dramatic objects and artifacts in Ur. However, what he discovered may well surpass anything ever exhibited before. In the course of removing layers of soil deposited by desert sands the elements and time from the ruins, the ancient city began to take shape here were the walls. There were the harbors and canals, the residential quarters, the palace, and the tumul, the elevated sacred area. Woolley's discovery of a cemetery dated thousands of years ago included unique royal tombs discovered by digging at its edge is the find of the century. The excavations in the city's residential sections established that Ur's inhabitants followed the Sumerian custom of burying their dead right under the floors of their dwellings, where families continued to live. It was thus highly unusual to find a cemetery with as many as 1,800 graves in it. From pre-dynastic, before kingship began, to Seleucid times, they were concentrated mainly within the sacred precinct. The graves were buried on top of each other, Burials were interred in another grave, and some graves were apparently reinterred. To date graves more accurately, Woolley's workers dug trenches of up to 50 feet deep to cut through layers. The bodies were typically buried in hollows in the ground, lying on their backs. Woolley believed that these different inhumations were accorded based on social or religious status. In the southeastern part of the sacred precinct, Wolfley discovered 660 completely different burials. With 16 exceptions, the bodies were either wrapped in reed mats as a kind of shroud or encased in wooden coffins, a more substantial distinction because the wood was scarce and relatively expensive in Sumer. After their death, each of them was buried in a rectangular pit deep enough to hold them. You're listening to Mike McPherson. This week, we are delving deep into the world of Mesopotamian archaeology, looking for clues to who the Anunnaki were. We look for evidence of their high strangeness, history, and mythology. Drawing upon the Book of Genesis, Sumerian clay tablets, and archaeological evidence such as ancient museum artifacts. We examine the Anunnaki reliance on technology, their sacred geometry, and the possibility of Anunnaki created modern humanity and installed themselves as our kings and our gods. Anunnaki god Enki had a fatherly relationship with the first two humans. 
Then Enlil, Enki's brother, took over as commander of Earth. Men and women were thus buried sideways, not on their backs as in common burials. Their arms and hands were flexed in front of their chests while their legs were slightly bent. Jewelry, a cylinder seal, a cup or bowl were found lying beside the bodies or on them. These objects enabled dating these graves to the early dynastic period, roughly 2650 BC to 2350 BC. It was when Ur's first dynasty, Uri, was founded, and the kingship was transferred to Ur from Uruk. Woolley concluded that these particular 660 tombs were resting places for the city's ruling class. Woolley discovered a group of 16 tombs grouped together and made an unprecedented discovery. Sumer was unique in Mesopotamia and throughout the ancient Near East, remarkable not only for their period but also for all periods. It was evident that only someone of the most significant importance had been buried in such unique tombs and burials, and who was more important than the king or his consort, the queen? Cylinder seals inscribed with names and titles Nin and Luga convinced Woolley that the royal tombs of Ur had been discovered. One of his most significant discoveries was the tomb designated PG-800. The unearthing and entrance of this tomb are comparable to Howard Carter's discovery and entry of Tut Ankh Amen's tomb in Egypt's Valley of the Kings in 1922. Woolley sent his sponsors a telegram in Latin on January 4, 1928, to protect the find from modern thieves. This unique group of tombs has been referred to as the Royal Tombs of Ur by subsequent scholars, despite some who have wondered because of what the tombs contained who was buried in them. Scholars who believe that ancient gods or myths are left bewildered. Those who accept the reality of the gods, goddesses, and demigods are in for a thrilling adventure. First of all, the 16 notable tombs were not just pits dug in the ground big enough to hold bodies. Instead they were chambers constructed of stones, they were deeply buried, and they had vaulted or domed roofs that required extraordinary engineering skills at the time. A final unique structural feature was added. Some tombs were accessible via sloping ramps leading to a large courtyard behind which the actual tomb chamber was located. Additionally to their exceptional architectural features, the tombs were unique because the body they housed, lying on its side, was sometimes not only in a coffin, but sometimes in a separate enclosure. All this was in addition to the fact that the body was surrounded by opulent and exceptional objects, in many cases, each of them unique. In a tomb designated PG-755, Woolley found more than a dozen objects around the body in the coffin, and more than 60 objects in the grave. Among the items were a magnificent golden helmet, an exquisite golden dagger in a splendidly decorated silver sheath, a silver belt, a gold ring, bowls and other utensils made of gold or silver, gold jewelry adorned with lapis lazuli, the blue stone prized in Sumer, copper, and electrum, a gold-silver alloy, and a bewildering variety of other metal artifacts, to quote Woolley. The dagger and the helmet were utterly unique in artistry and metalworking techniques. That was all quite astonishing at the time when human metallurgy was just progressing from copper, that didn't require melting, to the copper tin, or copper arsenic alloy that we call bronze today. Let us remember that Egypt's pharaoh Tutankhamun reigned about 12 centuries after these observations, some 12 centuries after the opulent golden death mask and magnificent artifacts and sculptures found in the tomb of Tutankhamun. Several other tombs contained gold or electrum objects of excellent craftsmanship, both similar and different. 
Daily use utensils were made of pure gold such as cups, tumblers, and even a tube for drinking beer. Other cups, bowls, jugs, and libation vessels were made of pure silver. Here, there were vessels made of alabaster stone. Weapons, including spearheads and daggers, and tools such as hoes and chisels, were also made of gold. As gold was a soft metal, the implements, usually made of bronze or copper alloys, were ceremonial or status symbols, as they served no practical purpose. Numerous board games were offered, and a wide variety of musical instruments. Gold and lapis lazuli were lavishly used for decorations on many devices. Among them was a lyre made entirely of pure silver. Another discovery, a complex sculpture, did not resemble any object or tool, but was art for art's sake. Gold and precious stones were again lavishly used for them by the artisans. In addition to elaborate diadems and headdresses, as the archaeologists called them for lack of a better word, chokers, bracelets, necklaces, rings, earrings, and other ornaments, all of which were made of gold, semi-precious stones, or combinations of both. Like the ones mentioned earlier, each of these objects showed artistry and techniques that were unique, ingenious, and unparalleled compared to any finds outside the tombs. It is important to remember that none of the materials used in all those objects gold, silver, lapis lazuli, carnelian, rare stones, rare woods were found in Sumer or throughout Mesopotamia. It was rare materials that had to be imported from afar, but they were still used without regard for scarcity or rarity. The abundance of gold was evident even in making everyday objects cups, pins, and tools, hoes, axes. When were household items made from clay or stone, and who had access to those rare metals for common uses? Who wants everything to be made of gold, even if that makes them impractical to use? One discovers as one reads records from those early dynastic days that it was regarded as a significant accomplishment for a king if he could make a silver bowl and present it to a deity, seeking prolonged life for himself in return. There were, however, countless exquisitely crafted items, tools, utensils, and artifacts in selected tombs, mostly made of gold and abundance without any connection to royalty. During Anunnaki's time on Earth, gold was the reason for their coming to return to Nibiru. Gold was first used here on Earth in 4000 BC, only in inscriptions relating to Anu's and Antu's state visits. Anu and Antu were instructed that all the vessels used for eating, drinking, and washing should be made of gold in those texts, which were regarded by their scribes as copies of Uruk originals. Even the trays on which food was served had to be gold, and the libation vessels and censers used for washing had to be golden. Anu's beverage list specifies that all the beverages had to be served in gold sapu, liquid-holding vessels, and even the mixing vessels in which food was prepared. Following the instructions, the vessels were marked with a rosette design to indicate that they belonged to Anu. Alabaster stone vessels were used to serve milk instead of metal ones. There were golden vessels when it came to Antu's banqueting, and the deities Inanna and Nanar, in that order, were listed as her special guests. The supu vessels for them, and the trays on which the food was served also had to be of gold. All those things were created before civilization was granted to mankind, so the only ones capable of making those objects were the gods themselves. This great list of drinking and eating vessels must be made of gold, and in one instance, for milk, of alabaster stone, almost reads like an inventory of Ur's royal tombs. As a result, the question is, who had to have common utensils made of uncommon metals? Who wanted everything gold? The answer was, the gods. 
upon reading some Sumerian hymns to their gods, such as the one engraved on a clay tablet in the basement of the University Museum in Philadelphia, we become increasingly convinced that all these objects were for the use of gods, not mortal royalty. The hymn extols Enlil for using his golden hoe to break ground in Nipper for the mission control center Durdaden.ki, whose blade was made from silver gold bound onto his hoe. Enki's sister Ninhursag, according to Enki and the World Order, took the gold chisel and the silver hammer for herself, serving as symbols of authority and status with these soft metal utensils. A rare musical instrument called the Algar is specifically mentioned as one of Inanna's possessions in a sacred marriage hymn written by the king Idi Dagon about the silver harp. Despite not knowing the exact nature of the Algar, it is mentioned in Sumerian texts as an instrument exclusively for the gods except that Inanna's was made of pure silver. The musicians say, play before you the Algar instrument, pure silver made. There are mentions of objects similar to those found in Ur's unique tombs and other hymns. These become almost countless when it comes to jewelry and so on, and these are significantly exaggerated when it comes to the jewelry and clothing of Inanna Ishtar. Despite all of that, what was found in several of the royal tombs was even more astonishing, were even more unusual than the objects and opulence that accompanied some of the deceased were the scores of other human bodies buried alongside them made them even more fascinating. A tomb, designated PG-1648, was found in which two companions were buried with the deceased, an unheard of occurrence in the ancient Near East. What was found in some other tombs was beyond anything seen before or since then. Woolley described tomb PG-789 as the king's tomb, consisting of a sloping ramp leading to the burning pit and adjacent burial chamber. Grave robbers probably looted the tomb in antiquity, explaining the absence of the main body and precious objects. Despite this, other bodies were all over. Six companion bodies lay on the ramp. The copper helmet and spear were on their heads as if soldiers or bodyguards. Each wagon was drawn by three oxen, whose skeletal remains were found in situ in the pit. A handler, a driver, and an oxen handler were also found in each wagon. In the death pit, Woolley found 54 of what he called the king's retainers, most males holding decorated spears with electrum spearheads. This was just a glimpse of what Woolley called the king's retainers. Near the bodies were loose silver spearheads, silver rain rings, shields and weapons. Bulls and lions made a prominent part of sculptures. It was found near a smaller number of female bodies inscribed with art and music, whereas all that spelled out a military leader. Inlaid panels depicted scenes from the tales of Gilgamesh and Enkidu on a musical soundbox, with panels of gold-sculpted bullheads with lapis lazuli beads, wooden lyres, and lyres exquisitely decorated. A rendering by an artist of what the assemblage in the death pit might have looked like in 1928, before everyone there was drugged or killed and buried in situ, provides a chilling glimpse of what the scene might have looked like. The Queen's Tomb was adjacent to PG-789, which Woolley named the Queen's Tomb. Woolley also found accompanying bodies both in the ramp and in the pit, including five guards, an ox god and its grooms, and ten female attendants who were carrying musical instruments. However, the body was lying on a bier in a specially constructed burial chamber, accompanied by three attendants. Antiquity did not raid this chamber, probably because it was a hollow chamber, its roof. Pitt's floor was at the same level as its floor. Woolley identified the remains as those of a female, the queen as he called her, from the jewelry, ornaments and large wooden chest Woolley found at the site. 
Her entire body was covered with jewelry and accessories made of gold, gold-silver alloys, electrum, lapis lazuli, carnelian, and agate. Many of these finds were gold, and gold in combination with lapis lazuli and other precious stones. Gold and silver were the metals used to make everyday objects, such as bowls made of rare alabaster stone, and various artfully sculpted objects including bull and lion heads. While the female attendants who buried her with her were less opulent, they were also similarly adorned. Each of them wore gold earrings, chokers, necklaces, armbands, belts, finger rings, cuffs, bracelets, hair ornaments, wreaths, frontlets, and a variety of other decorations along with an elaborate golden headdress. Within a few yards of these two tombs, Wooly found the forepart of PG-1237, another large tomb. The ramp and the pit were unearthed, but he did not find the burial chamber where they must have been buried. In total, 73 bodies were found in the Great Death Pit. Based on the skeletal remains and the objects found near them, only five of them were males. The pit contained 68 female bodies with a lyre, known as the Lyre of Ur, a ram sculpture, and various jewelry. Gold was the predominant material used in the tombs. Later it was determined that Woolley had found a burial chamber, abutting PG-1237, but because it was covered in reed mats, he regarded it as an intrusion from the past rather than the original burial. Woolley also discovered a few more death pits, but they were not associated with burials. In some, such as PG-1618 and PG-1648, Woolley referred to as retainers a few bodies, in others they held many more, PG-1050 for example, held 40 bodies. All of these were probably entombments similar to PG-789 and PG-800, and probably PG-755 as well. Scholars and researchers from Woolley were intrigued, as these entombments were neither matched anywhere else nor mentioned in Mesopotamian literature with one exception. In English, Samuel N. Kramer's rendering of the death of Gilgamesh depicts Gilgamesh on his deathbed. UTU informs him that Enlil will not grant him eternal life, but he is comforted by the promise of seeing the light, even in the nether world where the dead go. We lack the link to the final 42 lines because of missing lines. In other words, Gilgamesh would retain the company of his beloved wife, his beloved son, his beloved concubine, his musicians, his entertainers, his beloved cupbearer, the chief valet, the caretakers, and the palace attendants who had served him in the netherworld. On the reverse side of the fragment, a line can be read as including the words, whoever lay with him in the pure place, or, when they had laid down with him in the pure place. This suggests that Gilgamesh's death refers to an accompanied burial, presumably as compensation for not achieving immortality as one of the gods, which Gilgamesh was two-thirds divine. However, there is no denying the striking parallel between the death of Gilgamesh text and the discovery at Ur. Got a boots and puppies for my coil. Okay, we're back. Gilgamesh. Although there has been controversy over whether the attendants, who were undoubtedly part of the funeral procession, stayed for burial voluntarily, were drugged, or perhaps killed upon reaching the pit, the basic fact remains, there they were, demonstrating a most unusual practice unemulated and unpracticed anywhere else where kings and queens galore were buried over thousands of years. There are no co-buried attendants in Egypt's afterlife, the great pharaohs are buried, amidst an opulence of accompanying objects, in tombs deep underground, lying by themselves in complete isolation. Qin Shi Huang, circa 200 BC, 
The Chinese emperor buried in China, accompanied by an army of clay subjects, was buried with an army of clay subjects. Despite being from AD time and on the other side of the world, we should mention a royal tomb recently discovered in Sipan, Peru, in which four bodies accompany the deceased. Unique to Ur were and remained the burial pits in the tombs. Why were these tombs so grand? According to Woolley, the 16 extraordinary tombs were those of mortal kings and queens, because it had long been accepted that gods and goddesses existed only in myth. However, it is believed that demigods, and even gods, were buried there, because of the abundant use of gold, the extraordinary artistic and technologically advanced aspects of the objects, and other features that we have discussed. An inscribed cylinder seal added to this conclusion. Bully named this pile of discarded stuff the Seal Impression Strata, or Sis. There were seals and seal impressions found both inside tombs and outside. All depicted some scene, several were inscribed with names or tides, indicating that they were personal seals. If a name-bearing seal was recovered on or next to a corpse, it was logical to assume it belonged to that person. In antiquity it was believed that the loose cis seals came from tombs that were looted, with looters keeping valuable objects and discarding valueless stones. Researchers consider even the cis seals invaluable, and we will use them as clues to unravel the biggest mystery of the royal tombs who was buried in PG-800. Seals of this type were found in PG-1382, a one-person grave, and PG-1054 by the side of a single skeleton. Among those seals, six featured scenes depicting lions preying on other animals in the wild. Although these seals did not reveal their owner's identities, it is evident from the third seal that a wild man or a man in the wilderness has been added to the depicted scene. It was found in PG-261, described by Woolley as a simple inhumation that had been plundered. And on it was engraved the name of its owner, Lugal Anzu Mushin. Despite its obvious identification as the tomb of a king, Woolley did not dwell on this cylinder seal in his report. Subsequent scholars ignored it as well. If the inscription is read, King Anzu Bird, it makes little sense since Lugal means king and Mushin means bird. In my opinion the seal becomes highly significant when it is read, King Anzu Bird, for it indicates that the seal belonged to the King of Anzu Bird Fane Lukalbanda, whose way to Arata was blocked at a vital mountain pass by the monster Anzu Mushin, Anzu the Bird. Anzu, I was born Mushin in the great precinct in the Lalu. Anana's beloved son, I am like Shara. Is it possible Lugalbanda, the son of Anana, the spouse of Ninsen, and the father of Gilgamesh, was buried in the plunder and violated tomb PG-261. Our theory suggests that other jigsaw puzzle pieces will begin to form a plausible picture never before considered. The PG-261 site, however, contains perwoolly, remnants of an assemblage associated with military men, copper weapons, a bronze axe, etc. objects befitting of Lugalbanda, the famed executive commander for the Inmerker. Because the tomb had been plundered by ancient grave robbers, various precious artifacts were likely stolen. Take a closer look at the tomb PG-755, where a golden helmet and dagger were found, to envision how PG-261 might have been original. One of the gold bowls, actually held by the buried occupant, was inscribed with the name Mies Kalam Dug, the name of no doubt the buried person. We explained earlier that Mies means hero, while the prefix means demigod, since he was not deified like Lugalbanda or Gilgamesh, his name does not appear in the god lists.
The one instance of a name beginning with Mies in the god lists the partly legible name Mies.gar, Ra found among Lugalbanda in Ninsen's children. Mies Kalam.dug, equals hero who held the land, is not a complete unknown. We know he was a king from a cylinder seal inscribed Mies Kalam.dug Luga. There is a Meskalamdig, King Meskalamdig, in the cis soil. There are two metal vessels near his coffin in PG-755 bearing the names Mies, Anne Pata, and Nin Banda Nin suggests they were related to him, and we know who Mies Anne Pata was. He is listed as the founder of the first dynasty of Ur in the Sumerian king list. This honor was not earned without the highest qualifications, as stated in the British Museum text that we quoted previously, Nanar Sin himself was the divine seed giver. As a demigod, he was not Nanar's official spouse, the goddess Ningal. Nevertheless, his genealogy still made him a half-brother of Utu and Inanna. As a result, we also know who Ninbanda. Pata Ninbanda, goddess, spouse of Masanapada, identifying her as the wife of the Ur-I dynasty's founder. Nin was in this context. Nin was inscribed on a two-tiered cylinder seal in the Cis Pile, the Man and Animals in the Wilderness series. Banda Nin Dam Mizan. What was Mies Kalam Doug's relationship to this couple? According to some researchers, he was their father, but we believe that a demigod can't be the father of a Nin a goddess. The seals found in the cis soil undoubtedly mean that they were also buried in the Royal Tombs Group, a group of tombs that were entered and robbed in antiquity, based on our guess that Nin Banda Nin was the mother of Meskalamdeg, and Mies An Pata was his father, and we suggest that their seals were discovered in the cis soil. Scholars must now clearly and emphatically end the continued use of Ninbanda's queen title. The base of Ninarsak, Ninmak, Ninti, and Ninki, Ninlil, Ningal, Ninsen, etc., were all divine names or epithets. The great god list contains 288 names or aliases whose prefix was Nin, sometimes for male gods as well, such as Ninurta or Ningishsida. Even though her spouse was a king, Ninbanda was not a queen, she was a goddess. The inscription twice stated that she was Ninbanda, Nin. Confirming Mies and Pata's marriage indicates that Mies Kalam.Dug, the VIP entombed in PG-755 was the son of the goddess plus demigod couple that founded Ur's first dynasty. In the relevant section of the Sumerian king list, Masanapada, the founder of the Ur-I dynasty, is described as having been succeeded on the throne in Ur by his sons Aan Pata and Mies Kiognana. By bearing the Mies prefix, they also confirmed their status as demigods, as they would if their mother were the goddess Nin Banda. Mies Kalam.Dug, the firstborn son of the family, is excluded from the Ur-I list. His title Luga suggests that he ruled elsewhere, in the ancestral city of Kish. These discarded cylinder seals and a damaged seal imprint were found in the cis soil, which bears Mies and Pata's name suggests that ancient robbers found the tomb and robbed it, throwing away or dropping the seal. Where is the grave? Is it possible that Meskalamdig, the king who did not reign in Ur, was the only one of these Ur-I kings to be buried in Ur royally? There are enough unidentified tombs to choose from. It behooves us to wonder who the mother of the first Ur-I family was, as the jigsaw puzzle of their burials emerges. What is the connection between Lugal Banda, Banda the king, and Nin Banda, the goddess Banda? According to our theory, Lugal Banda was buried in Ur along with Nin Banda's spouse, Mies Ann Pata, and her three sons. What happened to her? Did she, with her Anunnaki longevity, not need a burial, or did she die at some point, and be buried here? We will keep this in mind as we uncover, step by step, the astonishing secret of the royal tombs of Ur.
Inscription, Lugalshu.pa.da, King Shupada, appears on the sixth wilderness scene cylinder seal that depicts a crown-wearing naked male. Only that he was a king is known, but that alone is remarkable, because the seal was found next to his body in the pit of PG-800, where he was one of the male attendants. The depiction of him naked fits with earlier instances in which a naked Lu Gal served as a female deity. It begs the question as to whether the other grooms, attendants, musicians, etc., who accompanied the deceased VIP, were merely servants or if they were themselves, dignitaries and high office holders. Furthermore, a seal bearing the identification A.Bara.GE, the water purifier of the sanctuary, was found near the wardrobe chest in PG-800, suggesting that the latter is the case. This seal was the personal seal of the deceased's most trusted personal aide, as the cupbearer of the deity. A cylinder seal found in the Great Death Pit of PG-1237 further indicates that the attendants of the entombed VIPs were high-ranking individuals themselves. The painting shows females eating and drinking with drinking straws as musicians play, belonging to a female courtier and inscribed Dumukisa, daughter of the sacred forecourt. The royal title of the holder of this title was of great significance, as it became a basis for an upcoming king named Lugal.Kasal.Si, the righteous king of the sacred forecourt, indicating her royal priestly genealogy. There was nobody in PG-755, no grave in PG-1237, and nobody in PG-789, the king's tomb, but PG-800 provided the archaeologists with a body, a grave, and a death pit. According to Woolley and all other researchers, PG-800 in the Royal Cemetery of Ur was the richest burial of all. The PG-789 of the King and the PG-800 of the Queen were also viewed by him as a particular unit, similar in their sloped ramps, the beer or coffin-carrying wagon, and the gravel pit filled with high-ranking attendants and their separate tomb chambers constructed underground as stone structures. If a dead person was buried in such a with-pit tomb with attendants who were VIPs, even a king, it meant that the person was much more important than a mere royal princess or king, it was a demigod or even a god. We can now turn our attention to the greatest mystery of the royal tombs of Ur, the identity of the female who was buried in PG-800. We can begin to unravel the mystery by examining the objects and adornments found with her. A few of the gold abundances found in PG-800, which was not robbed in antiquity, have already been described, and we noted the similarity between such use and the specifications for a new and Antu stay in Uruk some 2,000 years earlier, including the making of bowls, cups, and tumblers from gold. Furthermore, the rosette of flower leaves is similar to Anu's emblem. Therefore, it is no coincidence that the same symbol can be found embossed into the bottom of the gold utensils in PG-800. Anu may have left these relics to Inanna, to whom she bequeathed the Temple of Iana in Uruk with its contents, if the utensils discovered in Ur are those he had brought back from Uruk. When the utensils were made from scratch in Ur, the VIP for whom they were made would have been entitled to display Anu's symbol. Other than someone directly related to Anu's family, who could that be? Another clue we believe is the golden tweezers, found in PG-800, a hidden object. We assume that they were garnishing tools, Perhaps, the same thing appears on a cylinder seal, according to its inscription, that belongs to a Sumerian physician named Azu. To support our conclusion that it was a medical instrument, we show the tweezers, from PG-800, superimposed on the cylinder seal. 
There is no evidence that this emulation of soft gold in symbolic form was a testament to the deceased's profession or an inherited family heirloom. In any case, it indicates that the goddess in PG-800 is associated with a medical tradition. The jewelry and adornments of the buried queen, as Wooly called her, may now be seen. They deserve special attention for every aspect that makes them stand out as unusual, remarkable, or extraordinary. She was buried wearing a cape entirely made of beads, not a dress. The queen was well-dressed, as evidenced by her large wardrobe chest outside the tomb chamber. From the neck down, however, the naked body was decked with long strings of golden beads, 60 of them, adorned with lapis lazuli and carnelian beads in artistic designs. A golden belt decorated with identical gemstones held the beaded cape at the waist. Each finger on her right hand had a gold ring, and the garter that matched the belt was worn on her right thigh. An armchair lay collapsed near a gold and lapis lazuli diadem, decorated with miniature gold animals, flowers, and fruits. Gold pins adorned the crown. It was, without a doubt, the large and elaborate headdress the queen wore that was the most glittering and eye-catching of her accessories. The object was found crushed by fallen soil, restored by experts, and then placed on a model's head. It has been among the best-known and most exhibited items from the royal tombs of Ur. It is located at the entrance of the Sumerian Hall at the University Museum in Philadelphia, and people usually say, wow, reaction at first sight. In the beginning, I also had that reaction. However, after becoming familiar with the piece and where it was found, I found it odd that to fit it onto a mannequin, made to resemble female heads found at Sumerian sites, an enormous quaff of stiff hair had to be artificially added. Heavy golden pins and ribbons held the heavy headdress. Matching size and design were huge gold earrings adorned with precious stones. It is apparent from the golden headdresses worn by the female attendants, buried with the queen, that the wreath is disproportionate. They fitted perfectly on the heads without resorting to artificial hair like hers, but they were less elaborate. In other words, either the queen had a headdress that was not her own, or her head was enormous. Her neck was adorned with a choker, a collar, and a necklace, all made of gold and gemstones. In PG-1237, some female attendants were also wearing chokers or collars of the same design, one gold, one lapis lazuli. The choker had a golden rosette in the center. The collar bore a series of alternating triangles, one gold, the other lapis lazuli. She wore this exact collar in some of her goddess Inanna Ishtar depictions. Early Ninma, Ninhursag temples also featured the same detailed design at the entrance and on ceremonial columns. This cult design, as scholars call it, appears to be reserved for female deities and suggests some sort of affiliation between them. The unique bead cape and the distinctive headdress worn by the queen in PG-800 deserve closer examination under these, and the previous link points to Inanna. The abundant use of lapis lazuli and carnelian requires a reminder that the nearest source of lapis lazuli was Elam, modern-day Iran, and carnelian was found in the Indus Valley farther east. The Sumerian king demanded Arata carnelian and lapis lazuli tribute from Arata to decorate Inanna's abode in Uruk, according to the Enmerkur and the Lord of Arata text. It is not without significance that one of the few artifacts in the ruins of the Indus Valley centers, the statuette of Inanna, shows her naked and bedecked only with necklaces and strands of beads and golden pendants held in place by a belt with a disc emblem. PG-800's queen, adorned with a beaded cape and belt, 
has a similar towering headdress with large earrings that appears as though an artist attempted to recreate it in clay. Anana was entombed in PG-800. Does this mean she was the queen entombed there? Possibly it could have happened, except that Anana Ishtar lived centuries later when the evil wind overwhelmed Sumer. We know this because her hurried escape is described in great detail in the Lamentation texts. She was also active in Babylonian and Assyrian times, in the first millennium BC. But who, if not Anana? The Death of Immortals We have already established that the Anunnaki gods' immortality in reality was great longevity resulting from their Nibiruan life cycle. Greece gave us the myth of immortal gods, or even demigods, by discovering Canaanite myths at their capital Ugarit, on Syria's Mediterranean coast. The Anunnaki acknowledged their long-dead ancestor couples by listing them on Nibiru. She succumbs to illnesses that bring him to the brink of death, in the very first paradise tale of Enki and Ninma, allowing gods to get sick and die. Ninma's arrival and the arrival of her nurses confirm illness among the Anunnaki. Anu's manhood was swallowed by the deposed Alalu, who later died of poisoning. Zu was sentenced to death and captured. It is described in Sumerian texts that the god Dumuzi drowned trying to escape Marduk's sheriffs. In later texts, Dumuzi is described as a resident of a netherworld. His bride Lanana recovered his body, but all she could hope for was resurrection in the future. Uninvited to her sister's domain, Lanana was killed, a corpse hung from a stake. Her body was retrieved by two android rescuers and with a pulsar and an emitter, brought back to life. As the nuclear evil wind blew towards Sumer, the gods and goddesses hurriedly fled in fear, neither immortals nor immune. Olymp-afflicted Nanar-Sin. It is written in a lamentation text that, on that day, as if she were immortal, the storm by its hand seized her. The great goddess Bow of Lagash refused to leave her people. During the New Year festival, the Babylonian version of Enuma Eish says that a god named Kingu, namesake of the leader of Tiamat's host, was killed to obtain blood to create man. Deaths of the gods were as well accepted as their births in Sumer. But where were they buried? We are asking, who was buried in PG-800? Sir Leonard Woolley would have found it strange if he had been alive to hear it. He sent a Western Union to chat to the University Museum in Philadelphia as soon as he reached the burial chamber on January 4, 1928, translated from the Latin chat he used for secrecy. Having discovered the intact tombstone built and vaulted over with bricks of Queen Shubad, I found the dress she wore in which gems, flower crowns, and animal figures were all woven together magnificently with jewels and golden cups. Woolly. When Woolly found the chamber, he immediately recognized it as Queen Shubad's intact tomb. How did he know this as soon as he had found it? Was Queen Shubad's name on the VIP's grave marker? Yes, four cylinder seals were discovered in PG-800, one in a wardrobe chest and three in a tomb chamber depicting female banquets. In the vicinity of the body, there were four cuneiform signs engraved. Despite Nin's meaning of goddess, Woolly translated Nin.shu.ha.ad as Queen Shubad, since gods and goddesses existed only mythically and had no physical body to be buried according to Woolly and everyone else. On reopening the Royal Tombs of Ur exhibit in March 2004, the University Museum in Philadelphia changed the exhibition's name from Queen Puabi to Lady Puabi. 
despite the change of her name to Nin-Pu.A.B.I., his assumption that this was the personal seal of the buried VIP has been taken for granted. This seal depicts a scene of female banqueting in two registers, with tumblers raised by the celebrants, probably showing them drinking wine. A female celebrant is seated at each record, and several female attendants and servers. On the second and third seals found inside the tomb chamber, two female celebrants are also depicted, eating, drinking, and being entertained by a harp player as they drink beer with long straws or have wine and food served by attendants. There was no writing on either of these seals. A fourth sealed cylinder was found outside the tomb chamber, which depicted banqueting scenes with female celebrants and attendants. As we have already mentioned, the inscription on the vessel identified its owner as a high-ranking cupbearer, who was called A.Bara.GE, the water purifier of the sanctuary. It is also important to note that they had to be a royal per se, since they were a namesake of a legendary king of Kish, N.Me.Bara.G.SI, the demigod who ruled for 900 years. Other than suggesting she might have been Queen Shubad, Wooly had no further information on her. The Mesopotamian records do not mention a queen named Shubad or Puabi. The Nene goddess Puabi is not listed in the god lists either, as she was a Nene. We would have to resort to detective tactics to uncover her identity, if not an unlisted epithet, of which every god had a slew, and if it were not a nickname, a local, or family name. There is no need to elaborate on Nin's script sign on the seal. When we deconstruct the epithet name Pu.A.B.I., the first component, P.U., corresponds to sign number 26A in the Sumerian sign list, and it refers to one who gives succor, a nurse or medic. Based on the medical tweezers, we concluded earlier that the VIP buried in PG-800 was a healer, just like Ninma. As Ninursag, Ninlil, and Lil's spouse, and Bao, Ninurta's spouse, were, we assume she directly related to one of them, making her an Enlilite. B.I. sign number 214 signified a certain kind of beer. The first component read A meant big much, the second component read A represented large much. As Ninpu.A.B.I. means healer of much beer, it refers to a goddess. It reflects the banqueting and drinking depicted on Eir Puabi's body, on the second cylinder seal. In fact, all six of the female seals found in the royal tombs show banqueting ladies of differing ages, hairstyles, dresses, and stature. It is worth paying attention to the small details, since the seal cutters might have tried to make them as realistic as possible. An attractive seal is the PG-800, where in the upper register, a young goddess sits to the right of the inscribed tied name, and a more graceful goddess, the guest, sits to the left. Is this a representation of the tomb's occupant and her heftier, more matronly guest? Since some of the skeletal remains from several Ur tombs, including PG-800 and PG-755, were examined by the then-leading British anthropologist, Sir Arthur Keith, it's essential to keep this in mind, since the physical size of the hostess, and her guest, has a bearing on their identification. This is how Woolley began his written report on Shubad Puabi, which was included in Woolley's 1934 book on the royal tombs of Ur. I have formed the following conclusions about the queen, after examining her remains. At approximately 40 years old at the time of her death, the queen was about 1.510 meters, 5 feet tall. Her bones were slender and her hands and feet small, her head was large and long. Her dental and other skeletal remains indicated a much younger age than 40, which puzzled Sir Arthur in estimating her age. 
Her height is comparable to that of Inanna in the photograph of Mari. Although Sir Arthur concluded based on detailed measurements that the queen was not a Sumerian, that she was part of a highly dolichocephalic race. Dolichocephalic means having a head that is disproportionately long than it is wide. The skull, badly fractured, may have been compressed by soil pressure to appear longer and narrower than it really was. More so, he was astounded and puzzled by the enormous cranium, brain capacity and overall size of the head. By measuring the frontal, parietal, and occipital bones along the midline of the vault, we can determine how large the skull must have been. The cranial capacity could not be lower than 1600 cubic centimeters, 250 centimeters, above the average for European women. Sir Arthur also examined the skeletal remains of the male in PG 755, referring to him as Prince Mies Kalam Doug. As he compared the two, he concluded that other than the large cranial capacity, Queen Shabad had a very feminine physical appearance. Mies Kalam Doug's body was shaped as a robust male. In Sumerian terminology, her head was like a gal, and her body like a banda. Sir Arthur concluded that his bones were thicker than hers. His right arm was particularly thick and strong. Sir Arthur concluded, the prince's bones alas. Despite being fragmentary now, they indicate he was a powerful and strongly built man, perhaps 5 feet 5 in. Or 5 featuring 6 in. 1.650 to 1.675 meters in height. He had a strong neck. Sir Arthur said the prince had the same cephalic index, length to width proportion as Queen Shub Ad, but was markedly elongated. His cranial capacity, brain size, was well above the average for Sumerians. His race, Sir Arthur wrote, was proto-Arab, for lack of a better word. <laughs> Sir Arthur reviewed fragments of skull and bone from several other early dynastic tombs. His main conclusion was that they too were proto-Arabs. In summary, he observed that the remains of the queen and prince stood out. There is particular interest in the fine physique and the rich intellectual endowments of Queen Shabad and Prince Mies Kalam Doug. If we are to measure mental capacity by the size of the brain, then the prince was physically strong and a man of superior ability. We can likely infer that the queen was a very feminine woman, based on her cerebral endowment and the physical characteristics of her body. This description of Sir Arthur entirely agrees with all other aspects that we have found. A heroic demigod was described in PG 755 as a strongly built powerful man with superior cerebral capacity, while the very feminine, smallish queen in PG-800 had an enormous skull. We have established that Mies Kalam Doug, the son of the goddess and demigod couple who found the first dynasty of Ur, was Mies Kalam Doug based on his skeletal remains and physical findings in PG-755. However, we still have to figure out who the VIP in PG-800 was, bejeweled and Inanna-like in stature, yet not Inanna herself. In the empty PG-789, who could she be enshrined with, and who was next to her? The following points are indicative of the identity of PG-800's occupant. She was identified as Nin Puabi by a cylinder seal next to her body. Among those buried with her were high-ranking courtiers, including a king, indicating that she was of greater importance than they were, and that she was a goddess confirming her Nin tide. Even the daily use utensils were buried in gold, imitating the only other known instance of gold used on earth, a new in Antu's visit CA 4000 BC. They were embossed with the same emblem as the Anu visit utensils, a rosette. 
PG-800 was buried with of the house of Anu, a direct linear descendant of Anu. It is possible that Anu was directly descended from Enki in Enlil, or from his daughters Ninma in Bao. The hoe found in the tomb among the hardest metals was made of the soft metal gold, i.e. symbolically. Before that, only the sacred hoe used by Enlil to establish the Duranki Mission Control Center in Nippur had been documented. Hoe clues suggest that the VIP in this tomb was an Enlilite, associated with Nippur, and not with Enki and Eridu. So Enki is eliminated, leaving only Enlil, Ninma, or Bao as the direct links of Puabi to Anu. Puabi's possession of a golden medical instrument, the tweezers, ties him to a tradition of giving medical assistance, as Ninma and Bao did. It leaves Enlil in contention because his wife, Ninlil, was as well. We cannot consider Ninma, Bao or Ninlil themselves, since it would seem highly unlikely that the youthful-looking Puabi was one of the olden ones from Nibiru who came to Earth. Instead, we must look at their female descendants. Those earthborn daughters of Ninma whose father was Enki are ruled out. We are left with the daughters of Enlil and Ninlil or of Bao and Ninurta. Enlil and Ninlil had two sons born on Earth, Nanar Sin and Ishkar, Adad, and several daughters, including the goddess Nisaba, mother of King Lugalzagesi, and the goddess Nina, mother of King Gudea. Nina lived long enough to be one of the deities fleeing the later evil wind, eliminating her as a candidate for Puabi. Also Nisaba, who still lived in Gudea's time, does. Enlil's foremost son Ninurta was married to Bao, equals Gula. Since Gilgamesh was their famous son, Ninsen must have been the mother, rather than her smallish spouse, who gave Gilgamesh the physique of Ninurta and the weight of Bao Gula to Gilgamesh. In addition to Ninsen, the famed Lugalbanda's wife, there were seven daughters. The kings of Ur-3 claimed Ninsen was their mother so Ninsen herself couldn't be Puabi, entombed in her eye. By following the descendants' lines further, we arrive at the next generation of Earthborns, according to Sir Arthur Keith. Puabi would be in her late forties if she were born on Earth. Nin E. Gula was the daughter of Ninsen plus Lugalbanda, and Inanna was Nanar Sin's daughter. Puabi could not be Inanna for the reasons already mentioned. Nin Puabi's jewelry, beaded cape, choker with its symbols, all silver harp, great femininity, according to Sir Arthur, and her stature bespeak Inanna therefore, if Nin Puabi wasn't Inanna. Why then was she linked to Inanna? The god Inanna had a son but no daughter, however she did have a granddaughter. Because Inanna was his mother, according to Lugalbanda's claim, her daughter would have inherited her femininity and love of jewelry traits as a granddaughter of Inanna. Lugalbanda's daughter Ninsen would also be a granddaughter of Bao Gula, because Bao and Ninurta were her parents. Nin E Gula, God lists, means Lady of the Temple of Gula, and confirms that she inherited the genes for femininity and jewelry from Grandma Inanna, and inherited the Gula genes from her grandmother Bao Gula, the massive head. In this way, we obtain two genealogical heritage lines of detection that converge. Anu Enlil plus Nin E greater than Nanar Inanna Lugalbanda plus Ninsen, and Anu Enlil plus Ninma, greater than Ninurta plus Bao Ninsen plus Lugalbanda. As a result, both genealogical lines point to the same Lugalbanda and Ninsen couple as the progenitors of Nin Puabi, her daughter Nin E. Gula. This conclusion explains the contradictory physique of Puabi, a small body, a granddaughter of Anana, but an enormous head, a granddaughter of Bao Gula. Also, 
This conclusion suggests that Lugalbanda was the one entombed in PG-261. As a result, it clarifies the neglected clue of Mies and Pada and Nin Banda Nin on vessels found near Meskalamdig's coffin in PG-755 and in the seal inscription Nin Banda Nin, Dam Mies and Pada, Nin Banda, goddess, spouse of Masanapada. They are the goddesses and demigods who started Ur's first dynasty, according to us. Can this solution be applied not only to PG-800, but also to other royal tombs that are easily identified? Remember Ninsen's involvement in the dynastic matchmaking, one obvious example being her scheme to wed one of her daughters to Enkidu. Is it not scheming for her when it was decided to transfer the central throne to a new dynasty in Ur, to have her daughter marry the demigod selected to carry out the task? In addition to her mother, Bao Gyula, her other great matchmaker, might be the older matronly visitor with the cup of wine shown on the cylinder seal, her grandmother Lnanna would have given her blessing. Right away, was she the other visitor, drinking a beer? This decision represented a triumphant return to influence for Lnanna. Is she also the other visitor? I suggest that Nin Banda was the daughter of Ninsen and Lugalbanda. Given the epithet named Nin Egula, as a result of her Bao heritage, linked to Inanna by the dynastic title Nin Banda. A woman has known affectionately as Nin Puabi for her constant partying. Nin Puabi was buried in the family's burial compound in the sacred precinct of Ur. Also, she was the younger sister of Gilgamesh, both children of a rare couple, the deified demigod Lugalbanda and the mighty goddess Ninsen. But that opens up a whole new topic. The identification of PG-800, probable or at least possible, is a gratifying achievement, but the jarring co-burials in the tomb chambers and especially in the burial pits must be understood by identifying identities in the other 15 royal tombs. As if that weren't troubling enough, there are no annals, hymns, lamentations or other texts that would explain the reason. The only textual corroboration is the death of Gilgamesh to add to the puzzle. Nevertheless, here is an out-of-the-box thought. What if the Gilgamesh text referred to his actual burial in one of Ur's royal tombs? No trace of Gilgamesh's burial place has ever been found, nor do the texts indicate where it was. It has been presumed that Gilgamesh was laid to rest where he had reigned in Uruk, but nowhere in Uruk, a site that has been most extensively excavated, was such a tomb found. Is there any reason not to consider the royal cemetery in Ur? As we returned to Sumer almost 5,000 years ago, when the central kingship, which had been in Kish and Uruk, was about to be transferred to Ur, we can imagine how the chain of events began in Kish. The first king was a demigod, Mies Kiag Gasher was a son of duty. The subsequent rulers followed suit sons of male deities. As an example of how much changed by the time of Lugalbanda, the father of Gilgamesh, it might be helpful to reproduce a list from an earlier chapter. To which one could add Gudea and his mother, Nina. Ianatam, seed of Ninurta, Inanna placed him on the lap of Ninarsak for breastfeeding. Meskiagashar, the god Um is the father in Merkur, the god Um is the father. Enramina, raised by Ninhursag. Masalam, dearly beloved son of Ninarsak, by breastfeeding. Lugalbanda, goddess Inanna is his mother. Gudea, goddess Nina is his mother. Gilgamesh, goddess Ninsen is his mother Lugalzagesi, goddess Nisaba is his mother. Lugalbanda's demigods are more than simply demi for the first time. 
At first, kings are demigods because they are fathered by gods and mothered by earthlings. Enki himself has set the example in pre-diluvial times. During this transition, a god is artificially inseminated while a goddess breastfeeds. Lugalbanda introduces a significant change from then on. Divinity comes from a female, and the mother is a goddess. With the breakthrough in genetics and DNA research, we can now understand the significance of this change. The new demigods have not only the mixed god earthling regular DNA, but also the mitochondrial DNA that comes only from the mother. When Lugalbanda dies, what should be done with him? He is neither a mere king, nor a typical demigod. As such, he cannot be buried on Nibiru, nor in Uruk's sacred precinct that has been sanctified by Anu himself. As part of his deification, he was buried in a specially built tomb at the edge of Nanar's sacred precinct with his favorite Lugal and Zu Mushin seal. The gods then take him to Ur, his mother's birthplace, and current residence, Anana. Gilgamesh appears next, and he is also noteworthy. He has a mother, not a father, like a godparent, and his father is also not an ordinary earthling. Lugalbanda, his father, is a goddess, Anana. In other words, Gilgamesh is two-thirds divine, enough to make him believe that he deserves immortality from the gods. Despite their reservations, he embarks on exploratory searches for eternal life with the assistance of his mother, the goddess Ninsen, and the god Utu. Despite this, he is still adamant that he must not peep over the wall as a mortal, and even on his deathbed, Utu tells him that Enlil has told him, no eternal life. However, he is consoled. Because you are special because you are unique, you shall continue to have your wife, cupbearer, attendants, musicians, and the rest of your household with you, even in the nether world. In this imagined scenario, Gilgamesh is buried near his father, in the sacred precincts of Ur, where he is promised a companion instead of eternal life. Where is it set? No one knows, but there are a number of them, emptied by ancient looters. What about PG-1050, which contained 40 companion bodies, approximately the number stated in the death of Gilgamesh? A precedent has been set when an example is set. Gilgamesh's death brings us to circa 2600 BC Uruk's heroic age is on the wane. All that remains are the epic texts and the depictions on cylinder seals, which highlight Gilgamesh, Enkidu, and heroic episodes. As the Anunnaki leadership contemplates where the central kingship should be located, Nin Banda, Gilgamesh's sister, and her husband Mies and Pada travel to Kish. Once Ur has been chosen, the goddess and the demigod couple move there to assume the role of founding the first dynasty of Ur. Mies Kalam.Dug reigns as king of Kish, even though Kish is no longer the capital of Kish. Mies Kalam.Dug, the eldest son of Mies Kalam.Dug and Mies Kalam.Dug, the new rulers of Ur, brings together rival Sumer cities and expands Sumer geographically and culturally. As a demigod, he is buried not far from his grandfather and uncle, in what is becoming the dynastic family plot of Ur-I. In his description of the tomb, Woodley described it as a simple inhumation in which were found a personal golden helmet and a magnificent golden dagger found in the coffin beside the deceased king's body. In addition to his personal items, such as his silver belt, a gold ring, and gold jewelry with or without lapis lazuli, the tomb contains many artifacts of his royal status, many made of gold or silver. The fact that Mies Kalam.Dug Luga appears inscribed on his personal seal does not indicate whether a death pit was once part of a more elaborate burial.
A second undiscovered part was also present and robbed in antiquity, as observed by the fact, Mescalumdeg King was found discarded in the cis soil. Nis and Pata and Nin Banda Nin's names are etched in metal vessels near PG 755, confirming the deceased's identity. Eventually, Nis and Pata peers over the wall. His wife and two remaining sons give him a burial fit for the dynastic founder, a proper coffin, a stone tomb chamber, and a death pit accessible by a ramp. Two wagons pulled by three oxen and driven by two men, and an oxen handler carried down the treasure made of gold, silver and gemstones along with the body. As bodyguards, six soldiers wore copper helmets and carried spears. Hi there, we're listening to Archaeology of the Anunnaki. Some female attendants were also wearing chokers or collars of the same design, one gold, one lapis lazuli. The choker had a golden rosette in the center. The collar bore a series of alternating triangles, one gold, the other lapis lazuli. She wore this exact collar in some of her goddess Inanna Ishtar depictions. Early Ninma, Ninursag temples also featured the same detailed design at the entrance and on ceremonial columns. This cult design, as scholars call it, appears to be reserved for female deities and suggests some sort of affiliation between them. The unique bead cape and the distinctive headdress worn by the queen in PG-800 deserve closer examination under these, and the previous link points to Inanna. The abundant use of lapis lazuli and carnelian requires a reminder that the nearest source of lapis lazuli is Elam, modern-day Iran, and carnelian was found in the Indus Valley farther east. The Sumerian king demanded Arata Carnelian and Lapis Lazuli tribute from Arata to decorate Inanna's abode in Uruk, according to the Enmerkur and the Lord of Arata text. It is not without significance that one of the few artifacts in the ruins of the Indus Valley centers, the statuette of Inanna, shows her naked and bedecked only with necklaces and strands of beads and golden pendants held in place by a belt with a disc emblem. PG-800's queen, adorned with a beaded cape and belt, has a similar towering headdress with large earrings that appears as though an artist attempted to recreate it in clay. Anana was entombed in PG-800. Does this mean she was the queen entombed there? Possibly it could have happened, except that Anana Ishtar lived centuries later when the evil wind overwhelmed Sumer. We know this because her hurried escape is described in great detail in the Lamentation texts. She was also active in Babylonian and Assyrian times, in the first millennium BC. Evil but who, winds. if not Inanna? <clears throat> the death of immortals. Is that a weapon? We have already weapon established of... that the Anunnaki gods' immortality in reality was great longevity resulting from their Nibiruan life cycle. Greece gave us the myth of immortal gods, or even demigods, by discovering Canaanite myths at their capital Ugarit on Syria's Mediterranean they genetic coast. Manipulation so they could the Anunnaki it. acknowledged they their long-dead ancestor couples by listing them on Nibiru. He succumbs to illnesses that bring him to the brink of death in the very first paradise tale of Enki and Ninma, allowing gods to get sick and die. Ninma's arrival and the arrival of her nurses confirm illness among the Anunnaki. Anu's manhood was swallowed by the deposed Alalu, who later died of poisoning. Zu was sentenced to death and captured. Not related, though. <laughs> it is described in Sumerian texts that the god Dumuzi drowned trying to escape Marduk's sheriffs. In later texts, Dumuzi is described as a resident of a netherworld. 
His bride, Lanana, recovered his body, but all she could hope for was resurrection in the future. Sounds like ISIS Uninvited to her sister's domain, Lanana was killed. A corpse hung from a stake. Her body was retrieved by two android rescuers and with a pulser and an emitter brought back to life. As the nuclear evil wind blew towards Sumer, the gods and goddesses hurriedly fled in fear, neither immortals nor immune. A limp afflicted Nanar Sin. It is written in a lamentation text that, on that day, as if she were immortal, the storm by its hand seized her. The great goddess Bow of Lagash refused to leave her people. During the New Year festival, the Babylonian version of Enuma Ihish says that a god named Kingu, namesake of the leader of Tiamat's host, was killed to obtain blood to create man. Deaths of the gods were as well accepted as their births in Sumer. But where were they buried? We are asking, who was buried in PG-800? Sir Leonard Woolley would have found it strange if he had been alive to hear it. He sent a Western Union to chat to the University Museum in Philadelphia as soon as he reached the burial chamber on January 4, 1928, translated from the Latin chat he used for secrecy. Having discovered the intact tombstone built and vaulted over with bricks of Queen Shubat, I found the dress she wore in which gems, flower crowns, and animal figures were all woven together magnificently with jewels and golden cups. Woolly. When Woolley found the chamber, he immediately recognized it as Queen Shubat's intact tomb. How did he know this as soon as he had found it? Was Queen Shubat's name on the VIP's grave marker? Yes, four cylinder seals were discovered in PG-800, one in a wardrobe chest and three in a tomb chamber depicting female banquets. In the vicinity of the body, there were four cuneiform signs engraved. Despite Nin's meaning of goddess, Woolley translated Nin.shu.ha.ad as Queen Shubad, since gods and goddesses existed only mythically and had no physical body to be buried according to Woolley and everyone else. On reopening the royal tombs of Ur exhibit in March 2004, the University Museum in Philadelphia changed the exhibition's name from Queen Puabi to Lady Puabi. Despite the change of her name to Nin-Pu.A.Vi, his assumption that this was the personal seal of the buried VIP has been taken for granted. This seal depicts a scene of female banqueting in two registers, with tumblers raised by the celebrants, probably showing them drinking wine. A female celebrant is seated at each record, and several female attendants and servers. On the second and third seals found inside the tomb chamber, two female celebrants are also depicted, eating, drinking, and being entertained by a harp player as they drink beer with long straws or have wine and food served by attendants. The Sumerians there was no writing beer. on either of these seals. A fourth sealed cylinder was found outside the tomb chamber, which depicted banqueting scenes with female celebrants and attendants. As we have already mentioned, the inscription on the vessel identified its owner as a high-ranking cupbearer, who was called A.Bara.GE, the water purifier of the sanctuary. It is also important to note that they had to be a royal, per se, since they were a namesake of a legendary king of Kish, N.Me.Bara.G.SI, the demigod who ruled for 900 years. Other than suggesting she might have been Queen Shubad, Woolley had no further information on her. The Mesopotamian records do not mention a queen named Shubad or Puabi. The Nine goddess Puabi is not listed in the god lists either, as she was a Nine. We would have to resort to detective tactics to uncover her identity, if not an unlisted epithet of which every god had a slew, and if it were not a nickname, a local, or family name.
There is no need to elaborate on Nin's script sign on the seal. When we deconstruct the epithet name Pu.A.B.I, the first component, P.U., corresponds to sign number 26A in the Sumerian sign list, and it refers to one who gives succor, a nurse or medic. Based on the medical tweezers, we concluded earlier that the VIP buried in PG-800 was a healer, just like Ninma. As Ninursag, Ninlil, and Lil spouse, and Bao Ninurta's spouse were, we assume she directly related to one of them, making her an Enlilite. BI, sign number 214, signified a certain kind of beer. The first component, red A, meant big much. The second component, read A, represented large much. As ninpu.a.bi means healer of much beer, it refers to a goddess. It reflects the banqueting and drinking depicted on Eir Puabi's body, on the second cylinder seal. In fact, all six of the female seals found in the royal tombs show banqueting ladies of different ages, hairstyles, dresses, and stature. It is worth paying attention to the small details, since the seal cutters might have tried to make them as realistic as possible. An attractive seal is the PG-800, where in the upper register, the young goddess sits to the right of the inscribed tied name, and a more graceful goddess, the guest, sits to the left. Is this a representation of the tomb's occupant and her heftier, more matronly guest? Since some of the skeletal remains from several Ur tombs, including PG-800 and PG-755, were examined by the then leading British anthropologist, Sir Arthur Keith, it's essential to keep this in mind, since the physical size of the hostess, and her guest, has a bearing on their identification. This is how Woolley began his written report on Shubad Puabi, which was included in Woolley's 1934 book on the royal tombs of Ur. I have formed the following conclusions about the queen after examining her remains. At approximately 40 years old at the time of her death, the queen was about 1.510 meters, 5 feet tall. Her bones were slender and her hands and feet small. Her head was large and long. Her dental and other skeletal remains indicated a much younger age than 40, which puzzled Sir Arthur and estimated her age. Her height is comparable to that of Inanna in the photograph of Mari. Although Sir Arthur concluded based on detailed measurements that the queen was not a Sumerian, that she was part of a highly dolichocephalic race. Dolichocephalic means having a head that is disproportionately long than it is wide. The skull, badly fractured, may have been compressed by soil pressure to appear longer and narrower than it really was. More so, he was astounded and puzzled by the enormous cranium, brain capacity and overall size of the head. By measuring the frontal, parietal, and occipital bones along the midline of the vault, we can determine how large the skull must have been. The cranial capacity could not be lower than 1600 cubic centimeters, 250 centimeters, above the average for European women. Sir Arthur also examined the skeletal remains of the male in PG 755, referring to him as Prince Mies Kalam Doug. As he compared the two, he concluded that other than the large cranial capacity, Queen Shabad had a very feminine physical appearance. Mies Kalam Doug's body was shaped as a robust male. In Sumerian terminology, her head was like a gal, and her body like a banda. Sir Arthur concluded that his bones were thicker than hers. His right arm was particularly thick and strong. Sir Arthur concluded, the prince's bones, alas, Despite being fragmentary now, they indicate he was a powerful and strongly built man, perhaps 5 feet 5 in, or 5 featuring 6 in, 1.650 to 1.675 meters in height. He had a strong neck. 
Sir Arthur said the prince had the same cephalic index, length to width proportion as Queen Shub Ad, but was markedly elongated. His cranial capacity, brain size, was well above the average for Sumerians. His race, Sir Arthur wrote, was proto-Arab, for lack of a better word. Sir Arthur reviewed fragments of skull and bone from several other early dynastic tombs. His main conclusion was that they too were proto-Arabs. In summary, he observed that the remains of the queen and prince stood out. There is particular interest in the fine physique and the rich intellectual endowments of Queen Shabad and Prince Mies Kalam Dug. If we are to measure mental capacity by the size of the brain, then the prince was physically strong and a man of superior ability. We can likely infer that the queen was a very feminine woman, based on her cerebral endowment and the physical characteristics of her body. This description of Sir Arthur entirely agrees with all other aspects that we have found. A heroic demigod was described in PG 755 as a strongly built powerful man with superior cerebral capacity, while the very feminine, smallish queen in PG 800 had an enormous skull. We have established that Mies Kalam Duck, the son of the goddess and demigod couple who found the first dynasty of Ur, was Mies Kalam Duck based on his skeletal remains and physical findings in PG 755. However, we still have to figure out who the VIP in PG 800 was, bejeweled and a nana like in stature, yet not a nana herself. In the empty PG 789, who could she be enshrined with and who was next to her? The following points are indicative of the identity of PG-800's occupant. She was identified as Nin Puabi by a cylinder seal next to her body. Among those buried with her were high-ranking courtiers, including a king, indicating that she was of greater importance than they were and that she was a goddess confirming her Nin tide. Even the daily use utensils were buried in gold, imitating the only other known instance of gold used on Earth, the new and Antus visit CA 4000 BC. They were embossed with the same emblem as the Anu visit utensils, a rosette. PG 800 was buried with of the house of Anu, a direct linear descendant of Anu. It is possible that Anu was directly descended from Enki in Enlil, or from his daughters Ninma in Bao. The hoe found in the tomb among the hardest metals was made of the soft metal gold, i.e. symbolically. Before that, only the sacred hoe used by Enlil to establish the Yankee mission control center for Nippur had been documented. Hoe clues suggest that the VIP in this tomb was an Enlilite associated with Nippur and not with Enki in Eridu. So Enki is eliminated, leaving only Enlil, Ninma, or Bao as the direct links of Kuabi to Anu. Kuabi's possession of a golden medical instrument, the tweezers, ties him to a tradition of giving medical assistance, as Ninma and Bao did. It leaves Enlil in contention because his wife, Ninlil, was as well. We cannot consider Ninma, Bao, or Ninlil themselves, since it would seem highly unlikely that the youthful-looking Kuabi was one of the olden ones from Nibiru who came to Earth. Instead, we must look at their female descendants. Those earthborn daughters of Ninma whose father was Enki are ruled out. We are left with the daughters of Enlil and Ninlo or of Bao and Ninurta. Enlil and Ninlo had two sons born on Earth, Nanar Sin and Ishkar, a dad, and several daughters, including the goddess Nisaba, mother of King Lugalzagesi, and the goddess Nina, mother of King Gudea. Nina lived long enough to be one of the deities fleeing the later evil wind, eliminating her as a candidate for Puabi. Also, Nisaba, who still lived in Gudea's time, does. 
Enlil's foremost son, Minerva, was married to Bal, equals Gula. Since Gilgamesh was their famous son, Ninsen must have been the mother, rather than her smallish spouse, who gave Gilgamesh the physique of Ninurta and the weight of Bal Gula to Gilgamesh. In addition to Ninsen, the famed Lugalbanda's wife, there were seven daughters. The kings of Earth three claimed Ninsen was their mother, so Ninsen herself couldn't be Puabi, entombed in her eye. By following the descendants' lines further, we arrive at the next generation of Earthborns, according to Sir Arthur Keith. Puabi would be in her late 40s if she were born on Earth. Nin Igula was the daughter of Ninsen plus Lugalbanda, and Inanna was Nanar Sin's daughter. Puabi could not be Inanna for the reasons already mentioned. Nin Puabi's jewelry, beaded cape, choker with its symbols, all silver harp, great femininity, according to Sir Arthur, and her stature bespeak Inanna, therefore, if Nin Puabi wasn't Inanna. Why then was she linked to Inanna? The god Inanna had a son but no daughter. However, she did have a granddaughter. Because Inanna was his mother, according to Lugalbanda's claim, her daughter would have inherited her femininity and love of jewelry traits as a granddaughter of Inanna. Lugalbanda's daughter, Ninsen, would also be a granddaughter of Bao Gula, because Bao and Ninurta were her parents. Nin E. Gula, godless, means Lady of the Temple of Gula, and confirms that she inherited the genes for femininity and jewelry from Grandma Inanna, and inherited the Gula genes from her grandmother Bao Gula, the massive head. In this way, we obtain two genealogical heritage lines of detection that converge. Anu Enlil plus Nin E greater than Nanar Anana Lugalbanda plus Ninsen, and Anu Enlil plus Ninma greater than Ninurta plus Bao Ninsen plus Lugalbanda. As a result, both genealogical lines point to the same Lugalbanda and Ninsen couple as the progenitors of Nin Puabi, her daughter Nin E Gula. This conclusion explains the contradictory physique of Puabi, a small body, a granddaughter of Anana, but an enormous head, the granddaughter of Bao Gula. Also, this conclusion suggests that Lugalbanda was the one entombed in PG-261. As a result, it clarifies the neglected clue of Mies and Pada and Nin Banda Nin on vessels found and in the seal inscription Nin Banda Nin, Dam Mies and Pada, Nin Banda, goddess, spouse of Masanapada. They are the goddesses and demigods who started Ur's first dynasty, according to us. Can this solution be applied not only to PG-800, but also to other royal tombs that are easily identified? Remember Ninsen's involvement in the dynastic matchmaking, one obvious example being her scheme to wed one of her daughters to Enkidu. Is it not scheming for her when it was decided to transfer the central throne to a new dynasty in Earth to have her daughter marry the demigod selected to carry out the task? In addition to her mother, Bao Gula, her other great matchmaker, might be the older matronly visitor with the cup of wine shown on the cylinder seal. Her grandmother, Lnanna, would have given her blessing. Right away, was she the other visitor, drinking a beer? This decision represented a triumphant return to influence for Lnanna. Is she also the other visitor? I suggest that Nin Banda was the daughter of Ninsen and Lugalbanda. Given the epithet named Nin E. Gula as a result of her Bao heritage, linked to Inanna by the dynastic title Nin Banda. The woman has known affectionately as Nin Puabi for her constant partying. Nin Puabi was buried in the family's burial compound in the sacred precinct of Ur. Also, she was the younger sister of Gilgamesh, both children of a rare couple.
the deified demigod Lugalbanda in the mighty goddess Ninsen. But that opens up a whole new topic. The identification of PG-800, probable or at least possible, is a gratifying achievement, but the jarring co-burials in the tomb chambers, and especially in the burial pits, must be understood by identifying identities in the other 15 royal tombs. As if that were troubling enough, there are no annals, hymns, lamentations, or other texts that would explain the reason. The only textual corroboration is the death of Gilgamesh to add to the puzzle. Nevertheless, here is an out-of-the-box thought. What if the Gilgamesh text referred to his actual burial in one of Ur's royal tombs? No trace of Gilgamesh's burial place has ever been found, nor do the texts indicate where it was. It has been presumed that Gilgamesh was laid to rest where he had reigned in Uruk, but nowhere in Uruk, a site that has been most extensively excavated, was such a tomb found. Is there any reason yeah, not to consider the royal cemetery in Ur? As we return to Sumer almost 5,000 years ago, when the central kingship, which had been in Kish and Uruk, was about to be transferred to Ur, we can imagine how the chain of events began in Kish. The first king was a demigod. Mies Kiad Gasher was a son of duty. The subsequent rulers followed suit sons of male deities. As an example of how much changed by the time of Lugalbanda, the father of Gilgamesh, it might be helpful to reproduce a list from an earlier chapter, to which one could add Gudea and his mother, Nina. Ianatam, seed of Ninurta, Inanna placed him on the lap of Ninarsad for breastfeeding. Meskiagasher, the Godam is the father in Merkur, the Godam is the father. Enramina, raised by Ninhursag. Masalam, dearly beloved son of Ninarsak, by breastfeeding. Lugalbanda, goddess Inanna is his mother. Gudea, goddess Nina is his mother. Gilgamesh, goddess Ninsen is his mother Lugalzagasi, goddess Nisaba is his mother. Lugalbanda's demigods are more than simply demi for the first time. At first, kings are demigods because they are fathered by gods and mothered by earthlings. Enki himself has set the example in pre-diluvial times. During this transition, a god is artificially inseminated while a goddess breastfeeds. Lugalbanda introduces a significant change from then on. Divinity comes from a female, and the mother is a goddess. With the breakthrough in genetics and DNA research, we can now understand the significance of this change. The new demigods have not only the mixed god earthling regular DNA, but also the mitochondrial DNA that comes only from the mother. When Lugalbanda dies, what should be done with him? He is neither a mere king, nor a typical demigod. As such, he cannot be buried on Nibiru, nor in Uruk's sacred precinct that has been sanctified by Anu himself. As part of his deification, he was buried in a specially built tomb at the edge of Nanar's sacred precinct with his favorite Lugal and Zu Mushan seal. The gods then take him to Ur, his mother's birthplace, and current residence, Anana. Gilgamesh appears next, and he is also noteworthy. He has a mother, not a father, like a godparent, and his father is also not an ordinary earthling. Lugalbanda, his father, is a goddess, Anana. In other words, Gilgamesh is two-thirds divine, enough to make him believe that he deserves immortality from the gods. Despite their reservations, he embarks on exploratory searches for eternal life with the assistance of his mother, the goddess Ninsen, and the god Utu. Despite this, he is still adamant that he must not peep over the wall as a mortal, and even on his deathbed, Utu tells him that Enlil has told him, no eternal life. 
However, he is consoled. Because you are special, because you are unique, you shall continue to have your wife, cupbearer, attendants, musicians, and the rest of your household with you, even in the nether world. In this imagined scenario, Gilgamesh is buried near his father, in the sacred precincts of Ur, where he is promised a companion instead of eternal life. Where is it set? No one knows, but there are a number of them, emptied by ancient looters. What about PG-1050, which contained 40 companion bodies, approximately the number stated in the death of Gilgamesh? A precedent has been set when an example is set. Gilgamesh's death brings us to circa 2600 BC, Uruk's heroic age is on the wane. All that remains are the epic texts and the depictions on cylinder seals, which highlight Gilgamesh, Enkidu, and heroic episodes. As the Anunnaki leadership contemplates where the central kingship should be located, Nin Banda, Gilgamesh's sister, and her husband Nis and Pada travel to Kish. Once Ur has been chosen, the goddess and the demigod couple move there to assume the role of founding the first dynasty of Ur. Nis Kalam.Dug reigns as king of Kish, even though Kish is no longer the capital of Kish. Nis Kalam.Dug, the eldest son of Nis Kalam.Dug and Nis Kalam.Dug, the new rulers of Ur, brings together rival Sumer cities and expands Sumer geographically and culturally. As a demigod, he is buried not far from his grandfather and uncle, in what is becoming the dynastic family plot of Ur-I. In his description of the tomb, Woodley described it as a simple inhumation in which were found a personal golden helmet and a magnificent golden dagger found in the coffin beside the deceased king's body. In addition to his personal items, such as his silver belt, a gold ring, and gold jewelry with or without lapis lazuli, the tomb contains many artifacts of his royal status, many made of gold or silver. The fact that Mies Luga appears inscribed on his personal seal does not indicate whether a death pit was once part of a more elaborate burial. A second undiscovered part was also present and robbed in antiquity, as observed by the fact Mescalumdeg King was found discarded in the cis soil. Mies and Pada and Nin Bandanin's names are etched in metal vessels near PG-755, confirming the deceased's identity. Eventually, Mies and Pada peers over the wall. His wife and two remaining sons give him a burial fit for the dynastic founder, a proper coffin, a stone tomb chamber, and a death pit accessible by a ramp. Two wagons pulled by three oxen and driven by two men and an oxen handler carried down the treasure made of gold, silver, and gemstones along with the body. As bodyguards, six soldiers wore copper helmets and carried spears. Many soldiers were encamped in the pit, carrying decorated spears and shields with electrum spearheads. Women singers and musicians were gathered with exquisitely decorated wooden lyres in a musical sound box decorated with scenes from Gilgamesh's tales. In addition, a variety of sculptures decorated with bulls and lions were brought down, one of which was a gold bull's head with a lapis lazuli beard, a favorite of the king. A total of 54 retainers gathered in the pit to keep Mies and Pata company in the nether world. Woolley numbered the grave PG-789 and called it the King's Tomb when he discovered it. Because of its obvious connection to the Queen's PG-800, he concluded that it was the grave of Mies and Pata, the founder of the Uri dynasty. Woolley concluded that PG-789 was entered and robbed in antiquity since the main body was missing and no gold, silver, or lapis lazuli items were found possibly the time when the digging for PG-800 revealed the tomb chamber of PG-789. 
Queen Kuabi's death is the final stop in our imaginary journey through time. We don't know how or when she died. Her two other sons, A.M. Pata and Mies Kiag Nana, succeeded her spouse Nin Banda Nin Igula Nin Puabi was left alone with her father Rugalbanda, her brother Gilgamesh, and her spouse Mies and Pata and her three sons are dead and buried in the cemetery plot where she could see them every day. She wished to be buried on earth alongside them, but could the Anunnaki not take her body back to Nibiru since she possessed some earthly genes through her demigod father? Answer, we don't know. No matter what the reason, Nin Puabi was buried in Ur next to her spouse, with all of the treasures and attendants this dynasty had become so accustomed to. Nin Puabi and Nino matter who exactly she was was the goddess who never left because she was adorned with jewelry from Grandma Ayanana and a large headdress from Grandma Bao Gula. And that brings us to one of human origin's most important discoveries. Despite all the Anunnaki and Ajiji who treaded planar earth and disappeared, Nin Puabi Anino matter who precisely she was was, was the goddess who never left. Postscript. Alien Origins of Humanity, The Evidence. The most exciting chapter that relates to human origins has been pushed against two blocking walls, as sea waves hit a rocky shoreline futile, since Darwin proposed evolution as the explanation for life on Earth. The believers believe that God, not evolution, created man. The scientific purists believe that they cannot explain how.
Tens of millions of years of slow evolutionary processes. Some 300,000 years ago, human beings went from being hominids, just learning to walk, to becoming the thinking man, Homo sapiens, us. As more and more hominid fossils are discovered, the greater the puzzle of the missing link, as the problem is known. In the past 30 years since the publication of The Twelfth Planet, I have tried to show that faith and science are not incompatible. Someone jumped the gun on evolution and mixed up his genes with his African cousin, Homo ergaster, to upgrade Homo erectus or Homo ergaster, as some like to call it. The biblical Elohim, who the Sumerians called the Nunaki, came to Earth from Nibiru, fashioned the Adam, and then took the daughters of man as wives. I explained that we had the same DNA when our planets collided with their planet, so that's why it was possible. There is a better way to explain all that without arguments, not just to say that the crime scene investigation indicates a murder occurred, but also to produce the body and say, voila. I wish one of the Anunnaki were still alive, a chap or lass whose Nibiruanus would be indisputable, who would sleeve up and say, we test are, my DNA, decipher my genome, Anunnaki. and see that I am not from your planet. Divine. Discover the secret the of longevity, of cure your cancers, and discover the difference. What a dream. However, this physical evidence, a body of an Anunnaki, does exist, thanks to fate and the dedication of archaeologists. It is known as Nin Puabi. Unopened boxes lying in the basement of the British Museum in London since Woolley's time contain skulls from the royal tombs of Ur. As I sought more information, I inquired about DNA analysis plans for these skulls. According to a polite reply, there are no plans to attempt DNA analysis at this time. But more research is being conducted by the Department of Scientific Research and the Department of the Ancient Near East, and it is hoped that initial findings may be published in 2003. According to the curator of the museum's Department of the Ancient Near East, a detailed reassessment of all human bones collected from Ur is currently underway after further exchanges regarding the size of skulls and headdresses. According to the report published in 2004, the reassessment involved radiography tests performed by scientists from the Natural History Museum. According to the report, despite the long time since the skeletal remains were discovered, the conclusions of the contemporary specialists can still be confirmed. In this case, the contemporary specialists were Sir Arthur Keith and his aides. When I obtained a copy of the report, I was shocked to learn that a museum in London still possessed skeletal remains of Queen Puabi and Prince Mescalinduk 70 years after Woolley's discoveries. The British Museum informed me, the skeleton of Puabi is in the Natural History Museum, alongside others found during Leonard Woolley's excavations at Burr. Is this true? During our conversation, Unexpectedly, the skeletal remains of a Nibiruan goddess, and a demigod king, were discovered intact nearly 4,500 years after being buried. 
Despite some disagreements about who actually built the Great Pyramids, disputes about the meaning of Sumerian texts, or embarrassing finds dismissed as forgeries, here is irrefutable physical evidence whose provenance, date, and place of discovery are undeniable. If I identify Puabi as an Anunnaki goddess and not a queen, and if I recognize Mies Kalam Dug as a demigod and not a Sumerian prince, we have two genomes of people from another planet. As a result of my repeated inquiries about whether DNA tests had been conducted or would be conducted, I was referred to Dr. Thea Mollinson, the lead reassessment scientist. By the time I reached her, she had retired. Friends in London tried to find out more but to no avail. Since more pressing matters had to be dealt with, the issue has been put on hold. However, recent news that biologists were able to compare Neanderthal DNA with modern man struck like lightning. If so, why not compare DNA from a female Anunnaki who died 4,500 yeah. years ago to yeah. DNA from a female Anunnaki? As stated by Margaret Clegg, head of the museum's Human Remains Unit, the museum holds both Nin Puabi, also known as Queen Shubit, as well as King Mies Kalam Dug. She explained that DNA analysis has never been performed on these remains, adding that the museum does not routinely conduct DNA analysis on remains in the collection, and no plans are in place to do so in the near future. This stance was reiterated by the museum in March 2010. Her Anunnaki DNA isn't pure because Lugalbanda, her father, was a demigod. However, because the mitochondrial DNA only comes from her mother, her mitochondrial DNA is pure Anunnaki, linking to the olden mothers on Nibiru via Ninsen and Bao. Her bones could reveal the genetic differences in DNA and mtDNA representing our genetic missing link, that small but crucial group of alien genes, 223 of them that helped us upgrade from wild hominids to modern man some 300,000 years ago. Wild hominids. My fervent hope <laughs> is that this book will convince the museum to do what is unusual and conduct the tests by demonstrating that Nin Puabi remains are no routine matter. The following explanations can shed Hi light there. on Gilgamesh's answer. Man was created by the gods. It was they who perfected his broad understanding. It was they who gave him wisdom. He was given knowledge, but eternal life was not given to him. Genetically, what did the gods withhold from us? Perhaps the creator of all wished life for the spin. goddess who never left to stay, so that we could finally discover the answer. little babies. Hi, little Mimi. Uh, 
Okay, that was really interesting. So they found, the, you know, the Sumerian tablets, Sumerian version of history. is way more fucking accurate than the Bible. That's what I'm getting from all this. In fact, let's, uh, let's pull up and hear some more of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's an hour long. Archaeology of the Anunnaki Sumerians. Revealing strange artifacts and Mesopotamian mysteries. Leonard Woolley, an archaeologist from Britain, returned to Iraq in 1922, almost 4,000 years after the nuclear ancient catastrophe, to uncover ancient Mesopotamia. An imposing ziggurat standing out in the desert plain drew him to the nearby site of Tel el-Mukiyar, where he began excavating. As old walls, artifacts and inscriptions were unearthed, he realized he was digging up ancient Ur of the Chaldees. Twelve years of his work were conducted through a joint expedition between the British Museum in London and the University of Pennsylvania Museum in Philadelphia. For those institutions, Sir Leonard Woolley found some of the most dramatic objects and artifacts in Ur. However, what he discovered may well surpass anything ever exhibited before. In the course of removing layers of soil deposited by desert sands, the elements and time from the ruins, the ancient city began to take shape here were the walls. There were the harbors and canals, the residential quarters, the palace, and the tumul, the elevated sacred area. Uli's discovery of a cemetery dated thousands of years ago included unique royal tombs discovered by digging at its edge is the find of the century. The excavations in the city's residential sections established that Ur's inhabitants followed the Sumerian custom of burying their dead right under the floors of their dwellings, where families continued to live. It was thus highly unusual to find a cemetery with as many as 1,800 graves in it. From pre-dynastic, before kingship began, to Seleucid times, they were concentrated mainly within the sacred precinct. 
the graves were buried on top of each other, burials were interred in another grave, and some graves were apparently reinterred. To date graves more accurately, Woolies workers dug trenches of up to 50 feet deep to cut through layers. The bodies were typically buried in hollows in the ground, lying on their backs. Woolley believed that these different inhumations were accorded based on social or religious status. In the southeastern part of the sacred precinct, Wolfley discovered 660 completely different burials. With 16 exceptions, the bodies were either wrapped in reed mats as a kind of shroud or encased in wooden coffins, a more substantial distinction because the wood was scarce and relatively expensive in Sumer. After their death, each of them was buried in a rectangular pit deep enough to hold them. listening to Mike McPherson. This week, we are delving deep into the world of Mesopotamian archaeology, looking for clues to who the Anunnaki were. We look for evidence of their high strangeness, history, and mythology. Drawing upon the Book of Genesis, Sumerian clay tablets, and archaeological evidence such as ancient museum artifacts. We examine the Anunnaki reliance on technology, their sacred geometry, and the possibility of Anunnaki created modern humanity and installed themselves as our kings and our gods. Anunnaki god Enki had a fatherly relationship with the first two humans. Then Enlil, Enki's brother, took over as commander of Earth. Men and women were thus buried sideways, not on their backs as in common burials. Their arms and hands were flexed in front of their chests while their legs were slightly bent. Jewelry, a cylinder seal, a cup or bowl were found lying beside the bodies or on them. These objects enabled dating these graves to the early dynastic period, roughly 2650 BC to 2350 BC. It was when Ur's first dynasty, Uri, was founded, and the kingship was transferred to Ur from Uruk. Bully concluded that these particular 660 tombs were resting places for the city's ruling class. Bully discovered a group of 16 tombs grouped together and made an unprecedented discovery. Sumer was unique in Mesopotamia and throughout the ancient Near East. Remarkable, not only for their period, but also for all periods. It was evident that only someone of the most significant importance had been buried in such unique tombs and burials. And who was more important than the king or his consort, the queen? Cylinder seals inscribed with names and titles Nin and Luga convinced Wooly that the royal tombs of Ur had been discovered. One of his most significant discoveries was the tomb designated PG-800. The unearthing and entrance of this tomb were comparable to Howard Carter's discovery and entry of Tat Ankh Amen's tomb in Egypt's Valley of the Kings in 1922. Bully sent his sponsors a telegram in Latin on January 4, 1928, to protect the find from modern thieves. Oh, 
This unique group of tombs has been referred to as the Royal Tombs of Ur by subsequent scholars, despite some who have wondered because of what the tombs contained who was buried in them. Scholars who believe that ancient gods or myths are left bewildered. Those who accept the reality of the gods, goddesses, and demigods are in for a thrilling adventure. First of all, the 16 notable tombs were not just pits dug in the ground big enough to hold bodies. Instead, they were chambers constructed of stones, they were deeply buried, and they had vaulted or domed roofs that required extraordinary engineering skills at the time. A final unique structural feature was added. Some tombs were accessible via sloping ramps leading to a large courtyard behind which the actual tomb chamber was located. Additionally to their exceptional architectural features, the tombs were unique because the body they housed, lying on its side, was sometimes not only in a coffin, but sometimes in a separate enclosure. All this was in addition to the fact that the body was surrounded by opulent and exceptional objects, in many cases, each of them unique. In a tomb designated PG-755, Woolley found more than a dozen objects around the body in the coffin, and more than 60 objects in the grave. Among the items were a magnificent golden helmet, an exquisite golden dagger in a splendidly decorated silver sheath, a silver belt, a gold ring, bowls and other utensils made of gold or silver, gold jewelry adorned with lapis lazuli, the blue stone prized in sumer, copper, and electrum, a gold-silver alloy, and a bewildering variety of other metal artifacts, to quote Woolley. The dagger and the helmet were utterly unique in artistry and metalworking techniques. That was all quite astonishing at the time when human metallurgy was just progressing from copper, that didn't require melting, to the copper tin, or copper arsenic alloy that we call bronze today. Let us remember that Egypt's pharaoh Tutankhamun reigned about 12 centuries after these observations, some 12 centuries after the opulent golden death metals and magnificent artifacts and sculptures found in the tomb of Tutankhamun. Several other tombs contained gold or electrum objects of excellent craftsmanship, both similar and different. Daily use utensils were made of pure gold such as cups, tumblers, and even a tube for drinking beer. Other cups, bowls, jugs, and libation vessels were made of pure silver. Here, there were vessels made of alabaster stone. Weapons, including spearheads and daggers, and tools such as hoes and chisels, were also made of gold. As gold was a soft metal, the implements, usually made of bronze or copper alloys, were ceremonial or status symbols, as they served no practical purpose. Numerous board games were offered, and a wide variety of musical instruments. Gold and lapis lazuli were lavishly used for decorations on many devices. Among them was a lyre made entirely of pure silver. Another discovery, a complex sculpture, did not resemble any object or tool, but was art for art's sake. Gold and precious stones were again lavishly used for them by the artisans. In addition to elaborate diadems and headdresses, as the archaeologists called them for lack of a better word, chokers, bracelets, necklaces, rings, earrings, and other ornaments, all of which were made of gold, semi-precious stones, or combinations of both. Like the ones mentioned earlier, each of these objects showed artistry and techniques that were unique, ingenious, and unparalleled compared to any finds outside the tombs. It is important to remember that none of the materials used in all those objects gold, silver, lapis lazuli, carnelian, rare stones, rare woods were found in Sumer or throughout Mesopotamia. It was rare materials that had to be imported from afar, but they were still used without regard for scarcity or rarity. The abundance of gold was evident even in making everyday objects cups, pins, and tools, hoes, axes, 
When were household items made from clay or stone, and who had access to those rare metals for common uses? Who wants everything to be made of gold, even if that makes them impractical to use? One discovers as one reads records from those early dynastic days that it was regarded as a significant accomplishment for a king if he could make a silver bowl and present it to a deity, seeking prolonged life for himself in return. There were however countless exquisitely crafted items, tools, utensils, and artifacts in selected tombs, mostly made of gold and abundance without any connection to royalty. During Anunnaki's time on Earth, gold was the reason for their coming to return to Nibiru. Gold was first used here on Earth in 4000 BC, only in inscriptions relating to Anu's and Antu's state visits. Anu and Antu were instructed that all the vessels used for eating, drinking, and washing should be made of gold in those texts, which were regarded by their scribes as copies of Uruk originals. Even the trays on which food was served had to be gold, and the libation vessels and censers used for washing had to be golden. Anu's beverage list specifies that all the beverages had to be served in gold sapu, liquid holding vessels, and even the mixing vessels in which food was prepared. Following the instructions, the vessels were marked with a rosette design to indicate that they belonged to Anu. Alabaster stone vessels were used to serve milk instead of metal ones. There were golden vessels when it came to Antu's banqueting, and the deities Inanna and Nanar, in that order, were listed as her special guests. The supu vessels for them, and the trays on which the food was served also had to be of gold. All those things were created before civilization was granted to mankind, so the only ones capable of making those objects were the gods themselves. This great list of drinking and eating vessels must be made of gold, and in one instance, for milk, of alabaster stone, almost reads like an inventory of Ur's royal tombs. As a result, the question is, who had to have common utensils made of uncommon metals? Who wanted everything gold? The answer was, the gods. Upon reading some Sumerian hymns to their gods, such as the one engraved on a clay tablet in the basement of the University Museum in Philadelphia, we become increasingly convinced that all these objects were for the use of gods, not mortal royalty. The hymn extols Enlil for using his golden hoe to break ground in Nipper for the mission control center Durdadan.ki, whose blade was made from silver gold bound onto his hoe. Enki's sister Ninhursag, according to Enki in the World Order, took the gold chisel and the silver hammer for herself, serving as symbols of authority and status with these soft metal utensils. A rare musical instrument called the Algar is specifically mentioned as one of Anana's possessions in a sacred marriage hymn written by the king Idi Dagon about the silver harp. Despite not knowing the exact nature of the Algar, it is mentioned in Sumerian texts as an instrument exclusively for the gods, except that Anana's was made of pure silver. The musicians say, play before you the Algar instrument, pure silver made. There are mentions of objects similar to those found in Ur's unique tombs and other hymns. These become almost countless when it comes to jewelry and so on, and these are significantly exaggerated when it comes to the jewelry and clothing of Inanna Ishtar. Despite all of that, what was found in several of the royal tombs was even more astonishing. For even more unusual than the objects and opulence that accompanied some of the deceased were the scores of other human bodies buried alongside them, made them even more fascinating. A tomb, designated PG-1648, was found in which two companions were buried with the deceased, an unheard of occurrence in the ancient Near East. What was found in some other tombs was beyond anything seen before or since then. 
Woolley described tomb PG-789 as the king's tomb, consisting of a sloping ramp leading to the burning pit, an adjacent burial chamber. Grave robbers probably looted the tomb in antiquity, explaining the absence of the main body and precious objects. Despite this, other bodies were all over. Six companion bodies lay on the ramp. The copper helmet and spear were on their heads as if soldiers or bodyguards. Each wagon was drawn by three oxen, whose skeletal remains were found in situ in the pit. A handler, a driver, and an oxen handler were also found in each wagon. In the death pit, Wooly found 54 of what he called the king's retainers, most males holding decorated spears with electrum spearheads. This was just a glimpse of what Wooly called the king's retainers. Near the bodies were loose silver spearheads, silver rain rings, shields, and weapons. Bulls and lions made a prominent part of sculptures. It was found near a smaller number of female bodies inscribed with art and music, whereas all that spelled out a military leader. Inlaid panels depicted scenes from the tales of Gilgamesh and Enkidu on a musical soundbox, with panels of gold-sculpted bullheads with lapis lazuli beads, wooden lyres, and lyres exquisitely decorated. A rendering by an artist of what the assemblage in the death pit might have looked like in 1928, before everyone there was drugged or killed and buried in situ, provides a chilling glimpse of what the scene might have looked like. The Queen's Tomb was adjacent to PG-789, which Woolley named the Queen's Tomb. Woolley also found accompanying bodies both in the ramp and in the pit, including five guards, an ox god and its grooms, and ten female attendants who were carrying musical instruments. However, the body was lying on a bier in a specially constructed burial chamber, accompanied by three attendants. Antiquity did not raid this chamber, probably because it was a hollow chamber, its roof. The pit's floor was at the same level as its floor. Bully identified the remains as those of a female, the queen as he called her, from the jewelry, ornaments, and large wooden chest Woolley found at the site. Her entire body was covered with jewelry and accessories made of gold, gold-silver alloys, electrum, lapis lazuli, carnelian, and agate. Many of these finds were gold, and gold in combination with lapis lazuli and other precious stones. Gold and silver were the metals used to make everyday objects, such as bowls made of rare alabaster stone, and various artfully sculpted objects, including bull and lion heads. While the female attendants who buried her with her were less opulent, they were also similarly adorned. Each of them wore gold earrings, chokers, necklaces, armbands, belts, finger rings, cuffs, bracelets, hair ornaments, wreaths, frontlets, and a variety of other decorations along with an elaborate golden headdress. Within a few yards of these two tombs, Woolley found the forepart of PG-1237, another large tomb. The ramp and the pit were unearthed, but he did not find the burial chamber where they must have been buried. In total, 73 bodies were found in the Great Death Pit. Based on the skeletal remains and the objects found near them, only five of them were males. The pit contained 68 female bodies with a lyre, known as the Lyre of Ur, a ram sculpture, and various jewelry. Gold was the predominant material used in the tombs. Later it was determined that Woolley had found a burial chamber, abutting PG-1237, but because it was covered in reed mats, he regarded it as an intrusion from the past rather than the original burial. Woolley also discovered a few more death pits, but they were not associated with burials. In some, such as PG-1618 and PG-1648, Woolley referred to as retainers a few bodies, in others they held many more, PG-1050 for example, held 40 bodies. 
All of these were probably entombments similar to PG-789 and PG-8 